Falsehood, what's my falsehood is your truth, and vice versa. Well, look, look at me, right? I'm only happy when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I can play the fool, when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself. And that takes work. Gotta work overtime for that. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. Guess who I am? I'm Jim Laskowski. Guess who I am? I'm Patrick Rapol. <gasps> I hope you guessed correctly. Wasn't that a fun game we just played? <laughs> yeah. You win a special prize. Mm-hmm. You get to listen to the episode now. Yeah. You just won. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And you know what? We should also thank our guest for joining us today. That's right. We have a guest. Who is it, Patrick? It would be Nick Batante. Um, you're incorrect. <laughs> no, no. It's Zach Batante. Yeah, that's that's actually who but it is. He actually he hosts a podcast, Film Jive. Oh, with his co-host Nick Wheatley, and uh, I sort of just fused them together. That's what I did. I apologize. They are one and the oh, same no. at this point. Should we just start over this whole thing? <laughs> no, I feel really embarrassed now. No, don't be. I, I apologize to your listeners for the their prize for guessing correctly is they have to listen to me talk today. But, oh, uh, no. Zach. This should, this should be interesting, actually, because uh, I've talked to both of you several times, but I've never actually done an episode with the both of you together. Mm-hmm. So, wow, I just thought of that. You're correct. Yeah, let's go. I mean, but, you, were on, you were on the Director's Club in uh, some form or another with the bonus episode, but it was just it. me at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. And we haven't been on the Film Jai podcast together. No. But, I think um, I think our I, I think our personalities would just overwhelm it, yeah, and it would just be too much, and like <laughs> it, it would be just everyone would be you could just hear the sound of people clicking unsubscribe. <sighs> That's a lot to take on. I think well, so. after about ten clicks, it would be over with. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but um, we're we're huge fans of the uh, Film Jive podcast. I, I'm I've been an avid subscriber for quite a while, even before I was a guest. So. Um, it's an honor to have Zach officially on our show, and uh, oh, it's we're, an honor to be here. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, I, I've, I, I guess I'm a fan of uh, film podcasts that just decide to throw a J word in there. Film junk, film jive. Mm-hmm. Maybe Cinecast should change their name. Film jazz, film juice, film jizz. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be much better for them. It'd be much better if they were called film jizz. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> they'd have to probably change their content and format a little bit logo certainly (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we're we're probably going to be doing something crazy right zach on this show yes because we're talking talking about john cassavetes yeah yeah we're gonna get drunk and start screaming at each other Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's gonna be intense honestly in in that way all of our episodes (laughs) so far have been john cassavetes themed (laughs) yeah Especially uh, when we disagree. Mm-hmm. Fits of rage. It's yeah. going to be great. We're going to be discussing gonna be a woman under the influence from 1974. And we're going to be talking about killing of a Chinese bookie from 1976. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Yeah. 
It's going to be great. Yeah. But you have a little news. So we have to wait a little bit because you have a little news, right? Yeah, it's really cool. Um, former guest, Troy Anderson. He was on the Ralph Bakshi episode, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, he was kind enough to pass along um, an interview opportunity to me because he knew I was a fan of um, Martin Donovan, who uh, I've known ever since I saw you know Hal Hartley's Trust way back in 1994, and have been a huge fan ever since. And I've kept up you know with you know many films that he's been in. He was in uh, Jane Campion's Portrait of a Lady, uh, Don Ruse's The Opposite of Sex, uh, quite a few really um, great supporting roles. He's just a good all around solid character actor who happens to be very consistent. He gets uh, uh, he gets shot by the the blind Pacino in Insomnia. That's right. In one of the funniest scenes in cinema history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he's he's worked with his fair share of uh, um, great filmmakers himself, and uh, he's recently gone on to become a director in his own right. And so I had the pleasure of talking to him for a good fifteen minutes over the phone and uh, conducted an interview. And talked a little bit about his debut feature, Collaborator, which co-stars uh, Olivia Williams and a really great performance from David Morris, who is another great character actor that tends to pop up in a lot of films. I've and, heard of that guy? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a it's a really good film. Um, so I'm going to put out a quick, like maybe 20 minute bonus episode within the week that you can check out. Um, I will, you know preface this by saying that the quality isn't the best because this was the first time I've ever done an interview over my phone as opposed to Skype and hooking up my phone to the soundboard was kind of tricky so you're going to hear some like fuzz background noise uh, Did you but, ask him what it was like to act for Hal Hartley? Um, yeah, I mean, I, at the top I kind of just proclaimed, procl- you know, proclaimed my love for trust and everything and uh, you know, I talked asked him, you know, what directors kind of like the question you posed to me and like helped me out with just what was it like and what directors specifically informed him and inspired him for his own uh you know efforts uh to come and you know he sort of touched upon Hal Hartley the most out of all the other filmmakers that he's worked with so you get to hear a lot about the collaboration process and how precise Hal was with his vision um, so it was a really great conversation. It gets I, I I tend to be a little nervous at at first, but then I really open up and I like actually went you, off. You really <laughs> open up and then start telling him your problems. Of course, <laughs> it became a therapy session with Martin. Um, no, about halfway through, I like kind of went off script from even my questions. It was like, oh, you know what? I I I really respond because like he was talking one way, and I just kind of went you know from what he said, and uh, you know I I was able to just sort of. You know, improvise in a way and just kind of go, this is what I thought of your movie, and this is my interpretation, and he kind of liked it. So if it, it seemed like it went better as it went along, and I felt really comfortable as it went along. Oh, so it was, it was a really good time, and I had a great time uh, learning more about an actor that I've been fond of for quite a while. So I'm looking forward to seeing where he goes from here as a filmmaker. So look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Troy said he's going to possibly make this uh, a regular deal for us, so... More director talks and interviews to come, possibly. So, more bonus episodes. That'd be exciting. Yeah, very. So, yeah. Um, don't think there's anything else to speak of to come? No. Maybe in April, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, we can move on. To what we watched. 
this week. <laughs> <laughs> Something new like Warwitch, VHS, or Boom, but TV shows are awfully tempting too. I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. I saw the devil in Major Pain, Train Spotting or Croupier, Jackie Brown, Ringo, or the Gray, and I wonder. This week What movies did we see this week? We are talking yeah, and we and we are talking to Zach Patante. We like to go with you first. <laughs> we uh, are. Well, what did you watch this week? <laughs> All right. Well, I probably watched this 2 weeks ago. Um just because I was trying to cram all the Cassavetes in for this episode, and I didn't really get a chance to see anything else. But the last thing that I did see was actually I rewatched Mad Max Two: The Road Warrior. Ooh, I haven't seen that in years. I really want to. I, I actually want to go back and watch all three at some point because it's been a I've long o- time. I've only seen this one, but it's mm. so good. Yeah, well, that was that was kind of came as a surprise to me. I remember seeing this when I was a lot younger, but not being as fascinated with it as I was this time. And it was kind of one of those happy accident things where it was like one in the morning and I was just staring at the TV and then it came on and I was like, I'll watch this for 15 minutes and then I'll go to bed. And I ended up just sitting through the entire thing and was just like completely binded with tension throughout the whole thing. Um, Those those car chase scenes are so incredible they're so original mm. and they're edited in such a like sort of non-linear sloppy kind of way that makes them feel so much different from any other kind of car chasing i've ever seen in any other action movie um everything george miller is an interesting filmmaker obviously because of babe and happy feet <laughs> and then he does the mad max movies but there is like such a very unique sense of personality with these movies and i think uh what i like about it in transition from the first mad max which i do like um i just like how the road warrior escalates the violence the action the tension to a whole other level um and I think while it gets a lot darker, it it definitely does. It maintains its sense of humor. You still get those silly little side characters like Bruce Spence and the caveman kid with the boomerang. Um, and uh, I I also thought the villains are great. It's just it's completely silly, but I I don't know. I just love the world that that those movies exist in. They still it still seems incredibly fresh even today i mean it has a 70s aesthetic but those movies still don't feel dated and they still seem a lot better than most action movies that are still being released today although i have not watched beyond a thunderdome in a while which i'm kind of eager to revisit but i remember being pretty disappointed with it a lot of people were only my friend colin Souter. he's like actively (sighs) defended 
Well, I'm a huge Tina Turner. Yeah. Um, I don't know I, if I've ever talked about we that We don't before. need another hero. Are, are, you, are you really about a huge Tina Turner fan? No, no, no. That okay. was a joke. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you anything about Tina Turner. Yeah. Uh, I, She's the, a private dancer. A dancer <laughs> she dances for money. For money. Yeah, yeah, she does what she wants you to do. <laughs> All right. um, I, I, like, it's, 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 it's interesting what you said about sort of how silly it is, but how it still works. I really do think for... You know, and it's a testament to how well it's aged, considering mm-hmm. how often it's referenced and ripped off. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is really singular with its tone, where the violence is really violent, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like jokey. It is goofy. It is silly, but it's not jokey. Like it isn't played for humor. Um, and at, like the tone of this film is like incredible. Uh, and you know, Mel Gibson is a great. Star like Mel Gibson's, a, you know, Mel Gibson's a psycho. But at once upon a time, he was a like a really charismatic, amazing actor. Oh yeah. Well, that's that's what's so sad about it is it's like I kind of forget, and then I watch a Mel Gibson movie, and then I'm kind of just like, "Fuck, you are amazing, but you are a crazy person, and yeah. you say horrible things." <laughs> so it, it's it's difficult. But it, it, you're definitely right. Like it's a movie like that singular stuff. It's just a movie that's it takes those things to extreme levels and uh you know so when it is silly it's extremely silly and then when it's violent it's extremely violent but like the the villains are totally ridiculous i can't think of the kid but there's like a moment where there's like a seance or something at the top of a hill the, the, nice. lead, I mean, the lead villain is named <laughs> the humongous oh, okay oh yeah <laughs> well lord humongous I, I mean i like i remember well i, I just had I was going to be on the Movie Club podcast, but I had a conflict with that. And that the the Mad Max universe plays a big role in the movie Bellflower, which I think is a piece of shit. And um, because like it's one of those things where a, a movie decides to reference you know something from pop culture and integrate it into the characters, but doesn't really have a lot of strong characterization to back it up. It's just like oh, let's just reference Mad Max because it's cool, and it kind of irks me in that world in that universe, but. Um, I remember watching both Mad Max and The Road Warrior back-to-back because my dad was such a huge fan of both of them and thinking, God, these are like such kinetic and energetic action movies that are have their own vision because of the post-apocalyptic universe it creates was so fully realized. And yet, and yet I mean, it's... And yet, despite the fact that it has... You know, it takes place in a fully realized universe, like, that... Like the way it does its world building is mm-hmm. all on the margins. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't dedicate a whole ton of time talking about what happened and where they are and everything. Like you, you just get glimpses of it, and your mind sort of fills in the blanks. And that's yeah, the sort yeah. of thing that is sorely missing from like action movies of today. You know, right. like the kind of, you know, it doesn't allow your mind to sort of fill in the blanks. And this is almost like it's almost as crazy as it is. It's kind of a smaller movie than that could ever get made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Today. I mean, a lot of it is Mel Gibson sitting on a hill with yeah. binoculars, yeah. staring down at that. There's some contemplative compound. moments. Yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, George Miller knows you can, you know, you can you can get away with a ton as long as you really pay it off. And yeah. some of yeah. those car chases, like the thing I love about those car chases is you would think, 
Like what it what makes a car chase exciting? And you think about most famous car chases in film history, what makes it exciting is there are people weaving in and out of traffic and there's public destruction and like stuff like that. And you know, Mad Max this is just empty highway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's purely editing and mm-hmm. it's purely the way it's shot. Yeah, it's, it's like forty cars on that yeah. highway. And the de- and I love how the destruction isn't explosion based. Like you just see things crumbling apart and flying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not just huge explosion after huge explosion. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the thing too. Is when that the final car chase thing reaches the end of it. Uh, I was waiting for the trucker to just blow up and then him to kind of come out of the fire, and that totally doesn't happen. So uh, it was interesting, but. I, I I don't know where this ranks for me in terms of my favorite action movies, but it's definitely near the top. I was completely blown away by it, but I, I just didn't remember it being as good as it is. I think but, we should add George Miller to our list pretty soon here because – Yeah, he's and, a, he's and a it gives me hope watching about. this too, like for uh, Fury Road, whatever year that plans to come out with Tom Hardy. So, Oh, is that like the – re? That's the sequel. Oh, a sequel. Yeah. Oh. Or a prequel or something. Because Mel Gibson isn't part of it. so He has hmm. a cameo. Oh, does he? Mm-hmm. That was confirmed recently. Because after watching this, I went and looked up. And yeah, apparently he is does appear in the movie as a character named The Drifter. <laughs> I was like, yes. I hope there's a moment like uh, – have you ever seen The Rundown with The Rock? Oh, yeah. I actually I really like that movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah. I, I, hope, I hope there's like a moment. Fire. I hope there's a moment like with, uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger where like – yeah, we're uh, – where Mel Gibson just sort of bumps into Tom Hardy. He's like, have yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Berg got my hopes up for a while with like the rundown and uh, Friday Night Lights. And then all of a sudden, he's out doing the battleship and not really doing much with his career as of late, which is kind of a shame. Because I, I really liked that his films for a while. But oh well. Can't win them all. Hollywood has changed. and Yeah, I realize that. Peter Berg is definitely a Hollywood director. Yeah, and there was a time when you one. could do... You know, battles. There's a time when you could do Friday Night Lights, mm-hmm. and honestly, there's no equivalent of that kind of middle, you know, middle budget drama that isn't a Oscar, you know, contender. Yeah, there's no real equivalent anymore for that kind of adult drama. Right. So you know, yeah, I, I don't know. Every I, now and then, a good sports underdog movie just really works for me. Yeah, yeah. Like it doesn't happen very like real, often. Like Real Steel. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Real Steel. I've heard good things about it. Uh, I I wouldn't discount Real Steel out of hand. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, every now and then, like there's uh, there's a surprise where like the, there, it feels like a throwback to a movie that I liked when I was you know younger. That and I saw the trailer for Real Steel. I'm like, it, they could go either way with that. And I, I for the most part, I kept hearing mixed things, so I just never made the effort to see it. Yeah. Um, Living in Cleveland and with crazy Browns fans have made me just I hate sports like I can't is, <laughs> people is are Cle- so ridiculous here <laughs> really that- Browns fans I've never heard of Browns fans I mean we live in Chicago oh my gosh yeah they can get crazy in Chicago I mean yeah the Browns the rivalry oh, yeah. do you have like an entire section of the stadium called the dog pound where it's just like you can do whatever the fuck you want <laughs> <laughs> so they have they so they, they created a hamster dam <laughs> Like everyone wears dog masks and barks. Everyone wears oh. dog masks, barks, and then has like sex parties, like eyes wide shut. It's oh, you're gonna give me nightmares. Yeah, you can murder a child. It's there's no laws in the dog found. Um, um, I actually really want to watch Mad, uh, the Road Warrior now. Yeah, uh, I know. Thanks, Zach. It's been I'm a really while excited. Since I saw it. 
no yeah. problem. Um, you know, you, you were talking about you know George Miller's singular vision with that film, and uh, I gotta say, during the opening sequence of the film that I'm going to be talking about, I knew right away I was watching a Park Chan Wook film. Uh, and I hate to sound like a broken record, but once again, we have another director we know and love deciding to become Hitchcock. <laughs> he decides, I want to tell a Hitchcock story with his latest film, his American debut, Stoker, mm. which just came out. Unfortunately, not in as wide of a release as I would have liked, because I wish more people could have a chance to see it, because I think it's pretty fucking good. Um it's very, very stylish in in its visual storytelling, and that's kind of what you come to expect from from Park Chan Wook. And having this like Hitchcockian element, because uh, the, the the plot is very similar, and I think most reviews have brought up it's almost like a reimagining of Shadow of a Doubt. Um, and I had just like a slight pinch of Night of the Hunter thrown in there because you have. Um, you know, a long lost family member coming back into the picture and sort of being this manipulative figure. And you sort of get to examine the relationship between uncle and niece kind of being a little creepy at times and not really sure where it's going to go. And there's this examination of the breakdown between family dynamics. And uh, it's also kind of a interesting coming-of-age and sexual awakening story with this very mousy, socially awkward... Uh, I mean, she's 17... I think she's 17 or 18 degrees... Or 18 degrees? What the fuck? <laughs> 18 years old? Um, it's probably because it's cold outside. Uh, so, yeah, I th- it really has this sense of dread that I really it got re- under my skin throughout most of the movie. Um, and he captures it visually. And that's the thing. It's not like a hugely dialogue-driven story, and I kind of really like that. Uh, that actually assuages one of my fears, which I think I, think I talked about in the Park Chan-wook episode, mm-hmm. was just that whenever Asian directors come to America, their the product always e- either seems to be watered down or they don't quite have a grasp of working with, you know, uh, English-language-speaking actors. Or they want to remake Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. Or they want to remake Coming to America. Right. Yeah. That's what my Blueberry Nights Who can blame them? Who wouldn't want to <laughs> remake Coming to America? Yeah. Wasn't The Dictator, <laughs> wasn't Barry, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's The Dictator pretty much a remake of Coming to America? It could I have been. Seen I it. stayed away from that. Yeah, one. me too. Yeah. <laughs> I've kind of given up on his movies as of late, it's, but who knows? It's It's funny about Stoker, though, because I'm probably the only, like, film person that's not going to see Stoker because of Park Chan-wook. They're going because I love Nicole Kidman. <laughs> so I'm like the only person that's like, I'm going because I like Nicole Kidman and everyone she's else is like, we not, love Park Chan-wook. Not in it that much, no, right? No, she's not. She's more of a side character. Um, it is it is Mia Wasikowska. I always have problems saying her name, but she is primarily the lead in this and she carries it. Um, I've I've kind of been a fan of hers because I uh, saw her on one of my favorite shows, HBO's In Treatment, and uh, she was one of the best performers in that entire series as a young, like, sixteen-year-old actress back then. And she's really come into her own. And this is like a really mature, creepy, understated performance where, it, again, it's it's more about body language and facial expression. 
and uh, kind of trying to convey everything without saying anything at times kind of performance, which are the types, it's not very showy, which I really liked. And I kind of bought everything as it went along. It was very creepy film, but not necessarily like tension building or terrifying. It was just like uh, nerve wracking, but not, not in a way that I would say is Hitchcockian in a way where like, oh no, what's going to happen next? And from scene to scene, it's more just like this prevailing sense of dread and um, fear for what, you know, these characters are going to go through. And, you know, I I wasn't necessarily worrying about the stakes because I I kind of figured, well, this is all going to go to hell anyway, based on how things are, uh, you know, um, disintegrating throughout. But I think as an exercise of visual storytelling, it's really something. Like, there's just, like, close-ups of interesting objects and imagery that you don't normally see. And I think that's what makes his style so interesting. Like, the close-up of, like, a, a, a bright red pencil after it's been used as a weapon. Do you have any idea why, like, does the film give any, like, can you discern any kind of indication why he would make this film in America as opposed to Korea? No, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a probably an interesting question that I hadn't thought of actually. Uh, I mean, it it could go either way. It does seem like something he could have made in you know his native country. Uh, but I know that it's it was written by Wentworth Miller, right. the guy from Prison Break. Mm-hmm. It was a blacklisted script. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's it. I, he definitely chose a really strong cast here. I mean. The, the uncle that comes into the picture is played by Matthew Good, who um, I wasn't too familiar with before, but he, he brings that sort of, uh, you know, uh, charisma and creep factor very well, in an, an, again, in a very understated way. And you, you just don't really know his intent. And obviously, it's one of those kinds of movies where, you know, as it goes on and the third act explodes, you get the revelation. You go, oh, well, now you kind of see why he, what his motives were. And that sort of kind of, that's the Hitchcockian reveal of like, oh, shit, well, that's why this has been taking place, which is what I thought was really effective. Can I uh, I ask one more question? question sort of no, one one last fear i have about this movie mm-hmm. uh and maybe you could help assuage the fear is this like killer joe no where it's just oh it's crazy no no no, no horrible no, no. and it's just horrible things happening to people and it's it's dark and you know there's pretty much not a lot of redeeming characters i would say i mean it's any oral sex scenes involving food <laughs> or anything like that no no, there's. A, I just I just hated that people were like, "Oh, Killer Joe, it's so funny." It's so, yeah. like it's just it's just horrible. I think the audience reaction was interesting because I mean they were finding things funny that I don't think were intended to be funny because maybe they didn't get like, like what kind of things. Um, a shower scene. You know, she, uh, she was masturbating after. I mean, she was. <laughs> she uh, is kind of like. She was thinking about a murder that had taken place and masturbating, mm-hmm. which was uh, an interesting that dichotomy. Hilarious. Yeah, and I didn't understand. Like, I mean, it could just be like the people weren't into the movie, and at that point, just like decided to laugh it off or, or whatever. And nervous laughter. Yeah, nervous yeah. laughter probably too. That could be it. Um, I don't know. Murder is masturbation material. That's kind of my cup of tea. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, I know you. And the end, and the ending has kind of a Terrence Malick quality to it. I, I have I, no not, idea what that means. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's hard to describe without like giving it away. So I probably shouldn't have said that. But um, it's it's one of those things where you see it and it's really beautiful but disturbing at the same time. Um, with with just how like everything is wrapped up in a quiet way, but it's all so very poetic. I don't know. It's hard to describe. <laughs> it's that's the thing. It's like when a movie is done so visually well, like being able to articulate it vocally to people. Uh, it's it's one of those movies. I'm like, I just want you to go see it. I yeah. want I want people to be able to have access. Uh, you know, have it be accessible right now. And uh, even in Chicago, it's only playing at like one theater, which is kind of unfortunate. Um, so I hope it gets a wider release, but I think I have a feeling it's like going to be like an art house kind of a run for it. Um, but I, I this might be a keeper for me. I, I look forward to like owning this on Blu-ray and watching it once in a while because it really I found it to be really effective. Um, so yeah, it's kind of this subtly disturbing thriller that explores some kind of interesting ideas um, about the nature of evil in a way that I thought was really well done and. I know some people have just kind of been like, eh, you know, about it, probably because it it is kind of a languid film, like it's not necessarily like fast-paced and full of twists and turns and the kind of suspense that you'd get from Hitchcock, but it's still, in terms of visual prowess and like the kind of thing, like if you're a Park Chan-wook fan, you're going to really get into this film, I think. So that's pretty much all I have to say about Stoker. I really loved it. Mm genuine surprise because i kept hearing mixed things throughout most of the people i normally talk to but it is kind of up my alley the way it was presented so sweet yeah go go see that shit that, you, that should be just just the blurb on if, the poster if you can yeah <laughs> go see that shit if you can if you can um i guess that leaves me it does it does uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know what I've been actually watching the most recently? Uh, slasher movie fan films. No way. I've, I've fallen back into that that hole um, to uh, a deeper extent than the usual. And Uh-oh. If, 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 uh, if you're a new listener, you may not know this, but I am obsessed with horror movie uh, fan films. I've... I find most like you know most fan films that are whether like Star Wars or they're Batman or whatever, like they're they're kind of they're kind of dumb and they just feel like a massive waste of time and they they never have you ever seen the Batman one where he fights Predator oh it's the worst <laughs> uh, well, it's like it's just like the biggest waste of money it's was like... that Dead End <laughs> yeah 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 dead, yeah no no all those see and, and, and that's the thing all of those are just like massive wastes of time and money and you can tell they're not really labors of love they're just like right. calculated attempts to get fanboys excited like mm-hmm. t- calculated attempts to get nerds to like post about it on their blogs and those are the kind of films that uh, that's that shit I don't like to quote Chief Keefe uh, you know <laughs> um, but there are the thing about horror movie fan films is number one the uh, and I, I'll, I'll recap this very briefly because I've, I've talked about this before on previous episodes but number one uh, like Friday the 13th like there is no there is no auteur behind Friday the 13th there was no creative um, vision behind like every single sequel was its own weird thing and changed the rules and just did whatever it wanted to do and in that way a fan film feels more in place with the series than say a Batman fan film 
um, just because it oh it's you mean it's a low budget person who's trying to approximate what Friday Thirteenth does. Welcome to <laughs> every Friday Thirteenth sequel. Yeah, um, but mostly I mean because they're all horrible. That's that's the other caveat after it. They're all really bad. Um, I I don't like sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised at some little innovations and some just like just the most minor of technical proficiency behind the camera just gets me excited because it just never happens. Yeah. Um, unless it's, again, one of those big budget stupid uh, kinds where it's... Like there was one uh, Friday the 13th fan film I saw called Friday the 13th Extraction and it's where... And it's basically aliens but with... Where they're, where there's like this Weyland yutani kind of corporation that's trying to like get Jason Voorhees and so there's like all these <laughs> marines and they're all like, oh, we lost contact! And then they like, they capture him and then of course he escapes and it's... And there's like all these special effects and like... Uh, Wasn't my, that actually kind of one of the actual movies? Isn't it like a bunch of soldiers um, blow him up or something like that? Uh, oh, yes. The yeah, the, it, it, that's the other thing. It's unoriginal because it, it takes its idea from Jason Goes to Hell in which the FBI okay. sets oh, up yeah. a sting operation. Yeah, I remember that. that was, I mean, Jason Goes to Hell is the ultimate thing that feels like fan fiction because it just rewrites everything. Yeah, it everything. totally does. It and rewrites everything and it's like – Steals from the hidden and it, and it's too. Obs- and it's obsessed with mythology and that's mm-hmm. the other – but in – and that to me is the the other key thing that to me fan films are really fascinating is because they reveal because they're so because they're so technically inept um, they end up revealing a lot more about the people who made them uh, than anything and you really get a sense of what people really like about the series and it's fascinating because it's nothing like the actual series like Friday Thirteenth movie Jason is just a force he just shows up there's movie A where these it, which is a summer sex comedy where these teenagers rent a cabin by the lake and they are all trying to screw and one guy's like I don't know and the other guy's like man you just gotta go for it and the one girl's like uh, one girl's like I'm not that kind of girl and blah 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 and then there's movie B in which a psycho killer is killing off characters from movie A until movie A can't continue anymore that's the basic Friday the Thirteenth structure um, where the killer is just it uh, like where Jason is nothing. Jason is just this force, and but all of the fan films are always from the perspective of Jason or Michael Myers right. or Freddy Krueger, um, and they're always like from the perspective of him. And they always want to create their own mythology, and they're obsessed with canon, and and it's it's really fascinating. So I've been watching a lot of those. Um, I've actually been sort of developing a uh, a column for Directors Club. Like I, I think I might do a weekly column uh, on fan films. Oh, that's uh, cool! On horror movie fan films because I'm just so fascinated, and uh, I've been in contact with a guy who wrote all of the young adult Friday Thirteenth novels, <laughs> <laughs> which is which to me is like a hilarious part of fan fiction because he was a fan of the series, and like he basically he got a job from the publishing company, going, "Oh yeah, just write these movie, write these books about Jason." So they're sort of. Uh, they're sort of uh, licensed fan fiction. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all that's crazy. That's mostly what I've been uh, watching. Oh, and I watched uh, I, I watched Poltergeist, the uh, trauma movie. Have you ever God. seen Poltergeist? No, I never. I think I've only seen Toxic Avenger and Tromeo and Juliet. I, I, I sometimes that. The trauma style is a little too much for me. Yeah, um, too too much is kind of their operating procedure. Yeah, I feel it, it's you know forcefully trying to be subversive in a way that turns me off, and I I'm open to it. I mean, it's it's something I have to be in the right frame of mind for, 
and I'm I certainly have a v- open mind to because uh, my sense of humor happens to be absurd and vulgar at times. So um, I'll give it a watch sometime. I'm very curious about it because I hear good things about it. Zach, how do you feel about like trauma movies? Um, I kind of can admire them. Yeah, for what they are. I mean, I, I sometimes certain ones um, I can watch and I can sort of appreciate them just because I, as someone who you know is an aspiring filmmaker, watching someone who I can tell very badly wants to make something very good, but just doesn't know how to do it. Like, um, it's kind of how I, I describe. I can Rob appreciate Zombie. the passion and the effort more so than the actual content, and so, but I, I certainly think they have their place. Um, but I like tox- the Toxic Toxic Avenger yeah. movies. And uh, did they do the Redneck Redneck Zombies or whatever? Um, that was the thing about the thing about Troma is it's tough. To, it can be tough to figure out what movies are produced by Troma and what movies yeah. are distributed by Troma. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there you could figure out if you like went to their Wikipedia page or whatever. But there's a lot of films with the. I think Redneck Zombies was one that was just distributed. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I'm not a huge trauma fan, though. I did recently read uh, Lloyd Kaufman's book, Make Your Own Damn Movie, and that is yeah. hands down the best book about filmmaking I've ever read. Um, yeah, I need to give that a look at some point. It is the most practical advice. It. It's easy to read, and it's and it's not just stupid. Like hmm. it is real. Like it's it's funny, but it's not uh, it's not just silly. Like it's very practical. Um, so I really love that book. And uh, you know, Poultry Geist was on uh, Netflix Instant. And I've heard good things about it, so I checked it out, and it's amazing. It is it is the only trauma movie I've ever seen that is actually like has clever and like really funny jokes, in addition to just being like juvenile like fart jokes. Um, and it's kind of crazy, like it's kind of crazy how well paced and funny it is, and hmm. how it and like it actually parodies the you know it's the Evil Dead. It's it's basically like an Evil Dead uh, you know slasher movie uh, or zombie movie kind of a thing. Um, and it's, and it and it parodies like parts of those kinds of films that that aren't often parodied. And you know, again, it's fucking trauma, so you don't expect it to be clever, and you don't expect it to be like interesting. You you know, but <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you don't it, expect it to be good or anything. No, no, no <laughs> and no, and and the you know the acting is bad, and it's right. just like it's just like sexist joke after racist joke after homophobic joke after yeah, like, like it just yeah. bludgeons you with that kind of humor, but like. Like there's this one, there's this one amazing moment where the whole film, like really late, they they do this really belabored thing where they're trying to set up that the zombies' uh, weakness is alcohol, mm-hmm. and like all of these characters as they're dying or passing to their side or whatever, like make references to their one weakness, and like it's very clear from the get go, um, and they actually like, and that's you know that's a very common trope with the kind of horror movies, and that's they make they, there's this amazing joke where this guy goes through like 15 different scenes in the movie like wait a second I was thinking uh, because do you remember that one point and he goes well actually I wasn't thinking that I was thinking like it's really funny and there's a lot of clever jokes on top of just dumb jokes of like shit flying everywhere <laughs> and racist jokes like it's it's and it's really well paced and they're gore and you know the number one the I, I feel like the number one piece of evidence you can give towards practical effects over like computer effects is they have the worst practical effects like ever like their blood doesn't look like blood and nothing ever looks like anything and they just put a wig on a melon and smash it and they say it's a head (laughs) but it's so effective it is so fun to watch like all the blood flying everywhere and all the 
bits and goo and everything flying, even though it's patently fake, you know? And it's, you know, it, it's how I feel about, like, old Godzilla movies, where despite the fact that they're clearly mod- model buildings, it's mm-hmm. much more fun to watch an actual model building fly apart than a than a, than a realistic-looking CGI building fly apart. It sounds like the there's, stuff I would watch a, with friends. There's a charming... A charm oh, to those kinds yeah. of things. Oh, totally. definitely. I, I agree. And, and, and it's and it's and it's and it's tied directly to their aesthetic. Like yeah. the, the very fact that it's low budget, and you can tell that they're working with a lot of actors who aren't very professional, and that the lighting isn't great, and everything kind of looks like shit. Like that is that's part and parcel with with everything about it. So it all mm-hmm. works to its benefit. There's a place for those types of films. I I would never dismiss them in any way. Uh, there's just mo- I, moments where, like, uh, you know, especially in the trauma catalog, where I've, I feel like it's forcefully subversive, and parts of, part of me wants to just kind of reject it on those grounds. Like, oh man, they're just trying too hard, and I don't know. There is a point. I think it comes back around. I think it's the sideshow Bob Rake. Yeah, kind of yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. In, and I think Poultry Guys does this, where it's so offensive, and mm-hmm. everything they're saying, like, they're it's a musical, and there are musical numbers where they're just like. That are so homophobic and like ant- and misogynistic and anti-feminist and just like right all these like, like it goes like so- the Seth MacFarlane Oscar show. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about the thing about the Seth MacFarlane and this is no, that's actually a good point. Yeah, no, definitely. The difference is you can tell that they don't really believe any of it because they're just saying everything. Yeah, right, um, right. Where and you know where context ends up being where the more offensive it gets, the less the less offended you can get by it because it's mm-hmm. just so silly. Um, sure. And uh, so it's actually really great. Uh, Poultrygeist is on Instant, and it's on YouTube. All their movies are on YouTube. They just put their movies on YouTube for free um, because they're fucking trauma. And I think they're sort of interesting to talk about, especially because Lloyd Kaufman is sort of the flip side of John Cassavetes. Uh, (laughs) It is because, you know, and and it's funny because... Does he direct all the trauma movies? No, he doesn't direct all the trauma movies, but there's, there's sort of a main... There's sort of a main line of trauma movies hmm. that you know you can tell what's a major trauma movie and what's a minor trauma movie. He directs all the Citizen, or all of the uh, Toxic Avenger right. movies. He directs, you know, he directs like the first class of Newcomb High. I, I don't know if he directs the first class, but he, I know he directed the first uh, uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man and. Oh, I did see that. Terror, wow, terror, that was a long time ago. I barely remember. Firmer. It. Yeah, um, I think he. But again, it's there's no there's no unions and it's all. Mm-hmm. Like everyone just pitch in and make a movie, and it's very much a let's make a movie kind of aesthetic. So yeah, there are. Well, like so I said, he's I think kind of re- like the poor man's Roger Corman. Then <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. Yeah, and 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 the thing about what I found fascinating about John Cassavetes is there are people like Lloyd Kaufman who their goal is to trash Hollywood and to say fuck Hollywood. Hollywood right. is nothing. That's where dreams go to die, and they're all cynical corporate bastards. And then you watch trauma movies, and you're like, eh, you don't really have a leg to stand on. <laughs> like, <laughs> your movies aren't very good. They're not. They're certainly not smarter. Or, um, I mean, certainly they're they have they show more personality than mm-hmm. a lot of Hollywood films, and they're they're more like in your face and, and risky and, and risky and and charming and stuff. But like. John Cassavetes is another per- person who, you know, oh, every chance he got would trash Hollywood, and 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 he's I think the first director I ever sort of encountered who really backs that shit up, where it's mm-hmm. like he makes movies that can't be made in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and he and he makes movies that are like just prove his fact, like no, you can do something like this, and it's like one of the best movies you've ever seen, and it's completely 
uh, antithetical to even Hollywood in the 70s, and it's just brilliant. Um, well, yeah, it is interesting because you bring up that, that, that sort of contrast between the two styles and the anti-Hollywood nature of, of both filmmakers and you know, I I remember. I mean, on you know, a technical level, a lot of John Cassavetes movies yeah. are very kind of shabby and rough around the edges. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, they have different intent. Yeah, but it's you know when I was you know hanging out with you know two or three friends at night and we were you know drinking beers at like you know at the age of eighteen in basements and stuff, we were the type of people to rent a trauma movie and just laugh our asses off together and have fun. We're not going to rent Cassavetes movies. Yeah, and those movies are comedies. Yeah. That's the other thing I think gets sometimes misunderstood about trauma movies mm-hmm. by people who aren't into them is that they're they're all comedies. Toxic Avenger is a comedy. Like yeah. all the horror movies are comedies. They're all comedies. They're they're meant to be just ridiculous and over the top and seen with a crowd and do just you turn to the person with the sex next to you and you're like, I can't believe what just fucking happened. Mm-hmm. But I think as I've gotten older and more attuned into like wanting to uh, study human complexities and all that stuff, like Cassavetes just resonates. With well, me yeah, more. and I mean, and that's and that's actually what separates Poltergeist from a lot of trauma movies is like a lot of those movies they just feel tedious after a while. Yeah, they're just so hitting you again and again, and there's no and the scripts are horrible. Right, this, this is a really good script. Okay, so I would highly recommend Poltergeist um, to anyone that's good. with a strong stomach because it is super fucking gross and. With a strong stomach for just offensive humor because it is super fucking offensive. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, a little bit wrong with that. <laughs> well, we'll be well, later in the year. We're going to be covering like John Waters, Russ Myers. We're going to be having some fun too. It's not going to all be like John Cassavetes and Claire Dennis. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I, but I, I mean, there's a difference between the politics of John Waters and the politics well, yeah, of Lloyd I Kaufman. I know. Uh, you know, and if you want, and we'll get into that for sure. That'll be fun. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Russ, you know, Russ Myers, like John Cassavetes, Russ Myers is a independent feminist yeah. film filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, John Waters is a independent queer right. filmmaker. Like that's that's way different than than like someone like Lloyd Kaufman who is uh <laughs> Well, I just mean we're going to be covering more lighter fare. Well, I mean, that, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, in yeah. terms of other filmmakers that we can enjoy talking about in a different context i think it's going to be exciting and i wouldn't mind covering lloyd Kaufman. no definitely i wouldn't either for sure because it's a whole other style that i'm not as aware of either and i think that's what's but he's great definitely an auteur yeah that's so. what's that's what's great about the show too yeah different styles mm-hmm. i think we're ready tiger style gangnam style there you go perfect uh, anyway, I think we're, so. So you think we're ready to talk about our? Uh, I mean, do you do you, do you, you don't either of you guys have anything else to add about drama movies or fan films or anything? No, but I, I'm gonna watch Poltergeist now. I, I yeah, definitely I'm watch Poltergeist. It. Fuck that! It's really fu- It's a really funny. I'm gonna watch movie. Poltergeist three. Yeah, like like the game Poltergeist plays is it does one dumb joke that you're completely expecting, and then it does mm. one re- weird smart joke like right after it that completely takes you off guard and blows you away. Hmm. Uh, so speaking of poultry ice, I rewatched the master and I like it more. Oh yeah. Yeah. I should rewatch the master. Yeah. Good. I guess I would put it more in my top 10 now. Mm-hmm. Not like super high, but it's definitely it, in there. Is it better than take this waltz? Fuck you. Uh, can, I, can I ask you, a, can I ask you a quick question? Hmm. Um, how is the master speaking of poltergeist? <laughs> I did that as a joke. Okay. <laughs> Because we're so great at um, yeah. uh, segueing. Yeah, no, we're the best. Yeah, we're like that guy who we should get. A, we should get awards. Their podcast awards for segueing. We'd win. We should just get segways. I think so. That'd be fun. Travel around on a segway. We should podcast on segways. There you go. That'd be fun. You just nailed it. Yeah, you found, you found the perfect formula. So let's talk about the director of the episode. 
John, John Cassavetes. Uh, let's take a five minute break so we can pee. was born in New York City and attended Mohawk College and Colgate University before graduating from the New York Academy of Dramatic Arts in 1950. By the late 1950s, he had made a name for himself as an actor. Financing his first film with the money he made in television, Cassavetes embarked on his directorial debut. Working from a skeleton script, Shadows was an experiment in improvisational acting and directing. Winning five awards from the Venice Film Festival, Cassavetes found himself suddenly in the position of making higher-budget films within the studio system, but he became resentful of studio interference. So he went back to acting, and then, by 1968, he decided to return to directing, this time working independently with the film Faces, a film about the difficulties in a suburban marriage, which continued in the vein of shadows with a loosely drawn script and cinematography. After Faces, Cassavetes embarked on this great film, Husbands, in which he starred with Peter Falk and Ben Gazzara. The film centered around three friends dealing with life and mortality after the death of a mutual friend. And though neither Faces nor Husbands were very popular with the mainstream movie-going audience, both were pivotal in the integration of cinema verite traditions in future Hollywood films. The crossover of the experimental and popular was clear in Cassavetti's most successful film, which came out in 1974, and you're about to hear all about Woman Under the Influence. So, Jim, hit it! So, John Cassavetes, here we go. You know, he was well-established... By the mid-70s, both as an actor and a maverick independent filmmaker. And after, some might say some, you know, lighter fare with, uh, what is it, Minnie and Maskowitz mm-hmm. in 1971? Uh, he kind of went back to his roots a little bit with a, a very intense relationship drama or character study, depending on how you want to view it. I, I'd say it's a little bit of both, but... It's a movie called Woman Under the Influence, starring his wife, Jenna Rollins, and Peter Falk. And it is actually a, um, it's actually a good thing you brought up that, it, uh, that needs addressing, is that we should probably address, before we talk about this film... Put the mic closer to your f- mouth. 
<laughs> oh, it was pointed the wrong direction. Yeah. I see. Okay, my bad. There you go. Um, and it's all right. Are you going to just edit this in? Yeah. No, it's actually an interesting thing you bring up about uh, about a woman under the influence. Like he's well established as a sort of a maverick filmmaker. By the time we should probably discuss briefly John Cassavetes because both the films we're going to be talking about, a woman under the influence and Killing a Chinese Bookie, came sort of in the later. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I mean I definitely was going to touch upon later some of his earlier films as well as I would definitely bring up his uh, his um, you know earlier films in terms of how he started out in the intro as well. Mm-hmm. But I think this film has kind of gone on as like his, you know, most renowned. I would think because a lot of people put it at the top of a list as being the most. Uh, Maybe this and Faces, I yeah, would say, are kind of tied. Yeah, they're the, the most, most renowned. They're the most accessible two films that he ever made in terms of that he received like positive recognition. Whereas mm-hmm. literally every other movie that he released, he was pulling, you know, a week or a month after it was released and then re-releasing it later. Whereas I think this is the only time where he, cause I believe he received an Oscar nomination for best director, um, for yeah. this film. And General Owens so, was nominated as well. Oh, uh, was she? Yeah. Okay. That's good. And I am not sure if there's been another filmmaker whose work that I haven't been that familiar with that I have responded to as quickly as Cassavetes. Exact same way. I'm so glad we're covering because, him on the show. Yeah, what a discovery. Oh my god. He's like one of my tac- new like filmmakers. he tackles just realistic human complexity <laughs> with like, you know, this raw cinematic verite approach to filmmaking. And yet it's not all like, you know, sorrow and sadness. He explores like the joy of being alive. You know, I really get that sense throughout, but it's also really like an instinctive approach to making a movie. Well, what what I would say, what makes the films sort of so compelling and give them such a charge and even make them difficult to watch at times is the way that the joy turns into sorrow. Yeah. And, and the way that, because he, he makes these films, I mean, Woman Under the Influence and Faces, I'd say especially, are like he makes these films that are made up of these very long scenes, these mm-hmm. scenes that are you know ten minutes, you know uh, ten fifteen minutes long, um, mm-hmm. and and there there are these scenes where just uh, where the emotions just transfer and are just so violent and uh, right and and tumultuous and you know, a woman of the influence is entirely. It's almost there's almost a meta game of you're you're tr- like you're hyper focusing on people trying to figure out where the turn comes where where Gina Rollins goes from being fun mom to scary mom yeah where where Peter Falk goes from supporting husband to angry abusive husband yeah. where where that turn is and that I mean that happens in a lot of, I mean that especially faces but you know a lot of films he's made um, are like that. Uh, it's confrontational in that way, but there's times where I want to turn my head because of how it it's the ultimate like emotional roller coaster yes. with these characters because they're so inconsistent, um, but beautifully acted. I this is like that kind of raw, primal, organic performance that I live to view in a movie. Um, like I, you know, I I go on record many times saying, "Oh, this is hyperbole," blah blah blah, but like. Both Jenna Rollins in this and Ben Gazzara, which we'll be talking about later, two of the very best performances I've seen in any movie. Uh, and 
a lot of it has to do with Cassavetti's approach, his dramatization, like capturing like a very subjective view of reality, but in a sensitive way. Um, he explores feelings that a lot of filmmakers don't dare to tackle. Um, these manic fits of rage, this sort of like the tension, you just feel it oozing in every frame. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's hard because like, you know, I've personally dealt with some of these things in my own life, but it's also very, because he doesn't always manage to make it all, um, difficult in terms of, uh, you know, a viewing experience because he, he adds levity, especially in killing of a Chinese bookie. There's lots of levity to it. Um, and in faces. So, I mean, I don't want to portray like Cassavetes is like, he's nothing but this downer filmmaker yeah. who only captures abuse and he's, he's, darkness. He's and punishing the audience. Right, exactly. Now, Zach, Zach, you were more familiar with Cassavetes than either of us before, uh, recording this uh, podcast, mm-hmm. but you, you said you did get a chance to go back and watch a bunch of his other movies all over again and sort of re-discover sort of discover him. Uh, how do you feel about A Woman Under the Influence? Well, it's, it's interesting because when I was a teenager and I saw this movie, um, even then it had a huge effect on me to the point where um, when people would ask me what my favorite movie was, I would usually answer with A Woman Under the Influence because um, – <laughs> I find and then, it and then they would make the it, and then they would make the jerk off motion like oh, you're this guy <laughs> right 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 because um, it's it's fascinating too because I knew who John Cassavetes was when I was like seven years old but it was like because I was watching the Dirty Dozen and then it was like when I was sixteen I'm like oh wait he he directed movies too I'm like I wonder what these are like and then you know this is what you get hit with but for me it's it's interesting because like all of his films but. It's completely organic mm-hmm. and yet entirely unpredictable at the exact same time. Um, and when I talk about like memorable movie experiences for me, the, the, you know, they tend to be ones where I experience some sort of euphoria. And, it's, and I kind of feel this way about all of his work, excluding a couple films, but where it's like <laughs> I find myself crying at something that's so sad yet laughing at something because another actor's doing something comedically at the exact same time and I don't think there's any other film or any other filmmaker where I can feel two completely different emotions at the exact same moment and on top of all that you know when I look at this movie there are moments where I'm genuinely genuinely terrified of what I'm watching I get very frustrated I get angry with people right it's it's a lot of work to sit through because he isn't a filmmaker who candy coats things for his audience at all. He wants you to work. And the other thing that's interesting about – that I've always noticed about his work is that um, usually when you watch a movie, there's a distance between you and the film. Um, in the case of all of his movies and this one specifically, th- there, there's no distance. It doesn't Absolute, exist. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, there's nowhere for you to hide because as you're watching it, there's nowhere for the actors to hide. And I mean it's – it, 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 I experienced so much anxiety just because mm-hmm. of that while watching it. It's uh, it's incredible. It feels, it feels intimate in a very yeah. invasive way. Yeah, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I, I want to do. I do want to say one of my biggest fears before going into this episode, before sort of actually watching his movies, was I knew that he made you know he he made films where the acting um, was very. Uh, was very naturalistic. I knew he made films that sort of were shot, you know, like a documentary. 
and that were about sort of smaller things. They weren't high concept films. Um, and I was afraid that it would feel like uh, mumblecore. Mumblecore. Yeah. Which I don't enjoy most of the time. Most of the time, um, there's this sort of shapelessness mm-hmm. to mumblecore. The puffy kind chair of kind of surprised me, but that was no, like no, one no, of the no, rare exceptions. There are exceptions, yeah. but for the, I mean, I love hump. I like hump day. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of mumblecore that is just kind of shapeless and and it can be kind of hard to discern. Self indulgent. A meaning and yeah, it's self indulgent. Mm-hmm. Where John Cassavetes, the writer. Um, he, you know, uh, a woman under the influence is a very specific structure. It's before and after a woman is institutionalized. Um, it sort of it shows her sort of breaking apart to the point where she has to be institutionalized. Yeah. Or and it, even that that's a question. Does she need did she need to be institutionalized? Yeah. And right. it's her after being institutionalized, being having received shock therapy, having been taken away from her kids and her husband for six months, which is you know a crazy long time. It's sort of structured like an opera in a weird yeah. way, oh, which is yeah. interesting because it uses so much opera music within the film. Yes, mm-hmm. that's, that's, I never, I never even thought about the the use of the music. But uh, John Cassavetes consistently sort of he is very good at creating huge emotions um, that feel very real and very yeah. and very down to earth, and sort of the uh, the um, and, and 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 sort of the. What's the word of the word? Sort of the uh, friction that comes mm-hmm. between those two approaches sort of creates something that's just genuinely captivating. Like a woman under the influence, it's there are scenes that go on forever. There's not a like it's not shaped. There's not a ton of s- different scenes. There's not a clear arc for the characters. It's very messy in that regard. But yeah, um, he knows where scenes are going, and he it's all about the arc, and it's all about following the characters. Uh, and in that way, um, he has a much more specific vision than a lot of mumblecore, which is sort of what I always feared. Well, it's unfortunate, too, because I think his name gets attached with mumblecore a little bit because so many mumblecore filmmakers always sort of drop him as a major influence. Right, and, and, and certainly he is an influence. Yeah, for sure. Not right. just, not just but, to them, but to filmmakers everywhere. Yeah, I mean, right. uh, a good example of his influence would be something like uh, Blue Valentine, which... Yeah, I think uh, you know when I saw that, um, just that sort of raw organic approach to showing the disintegration of a relationship uh, was like you know really hard to watch, but also kind of a you know it's a, a, a cathartic experience, but also really easy to um, process as you're watching because you understand the characters without having to get like this whole backstory of like, well, this is why this person drinks and this is why this person is that way. It just feels real without having to like you know explicitly you know delve into the backstory of each character which i really like that approach because that shows like an intuition from the filmmaker that it respects the audience enough to where like oh they'll get it they'll understand and it's not even films that resemble john cass i mean the other thing Mm -hmm. about john cassavetes that his his, john cassavetes the filmmaker kind of gets overshadowed by john cassavetes the figure of mm-hmm. independent film, which is John Cassavetes, the guy who said, fuck the studios. John Cassavetes, the guy who put his money where his mouth is and mortgaged his house and spent yeah. three years editing faces. And um, that, I think, and the guy actual who, human faces. You know, and, and the guy who inspired, you know, inspired, you know, Soderbergh to, uh, you know, yeah, Soderbergh I could see that. Films. Sure. He makes the guy who inspired Jim Jarmusch to make the films he makes without a studio and just 
it can be difficult to uh, I, I feel that he, that sort of Cassavetes almost dominates the conversation mm-hmm. um, I mean someone like Shane Carruth is sort of the filmmaker I always think of in terms of John Cassavetes he makes the films he wants to make when he feels he has a film in him he you know he makes uh, he makes Primer um, for no money and his he, latest film I'm very excited to see his latest film again it's just like I, I had something to say I had a film to make so I made it on my own terms and right. I'm releasing it and I'm not dealing with any produce I'm not dealing with any uh companies that are putting in their creative input i'm making it on my own and um i mean that part of john cassavetes i I do want to just quickly say like that can't be understated how important he is to film history and Mm -hmm. um even just beyond the actual films he made uh sort of what he represented uh is is also extremely important um now of course we got to talk about the performances uh to start I feel we're sort of talking generally about the kind of films he makes about a woman under the influence. I have a couple questions for you guys. Um, this is a film I actually, I just saw today for the first time. Um, and I'm sort of still chewing it over. And I sort of want to ask you, um, number one, do you think, uh, Mabel, the main character played by Gina Rollins, do you think that she needed to be, uh, institutionalized? No, I don't think so. It's hard to say. (laughs) I mean, I think, um, I don't think so because she was just eccentric and I think her behavior was just really clashing at times with, I mean, I think she has definitely uh, some socialization issues, especially with how her behavior was at the dinner. She's definitely socially inept. Yeah, definitely socially inept. Um, But I'm not sure if she was, like, experiencing, like, a psychosis or, like, a hysteria that warranted hospitalization or not. Yeah. I I kind of feel the same way where at the time when I was watching it, I was just – I was just sort of like, oh, my God, this woman is – you know, she clearly has mental problems. She's clearly Mm -hmm. struggling. But she wasn't dangerous. No. No, I didn't feel that she was, like, a a threat in any way. It's just that she was – like overly eccentric to the point of being off-putting at times yeah. for people. Um, well, no, go I, ahead. I, I think um, like a majority of his movies, and we'll get into this more, I think when we talk about the killing of a Chinese bookie, um, I think this is kind of a movie that's just about someone living in a conformist society. Mm. And I think her problem is, is that she desperately wants to express herself but she's also sort of living within the framework of a marriage and she doesn't know how to act within that framework. Yeah. She's really struggling. Like she she wants to please everyone. But that's, you know, but she also wants to be who she is. And and to me, she never actually changes in the movie. It's it's Nick who can't function with her the way that she is. He's offended by her forwardness, her honesty. Yet he tells her to me their marriage is a complete contradiction because he scolds her at the table in front of all of his friends but then he tells her afterwards that she did nothing wrong or you know he tells her after she gets back from the mental institution to be yourself but he's the one that committed her um yeah you know and and his him committing her is was entirely based on an assumption that she was fooling around with the guy, the neighbor or whatever, who brings his kids over. When in reality, the way that I – at least I look at it, she did nothing wrong with him. She was just trying to 
create some kind of comfortable environment. Is that what you? Uh, is that what you feel? Is, yeah, I is do. Is that he thought he was? She was fooling around. I didn't get that impression. Mm. No, um, what you don't about think you, so. Jim? It's tough. Well, I'm like, I think. What impression she, did she you experience... get from his reaction when he came home? What do you? Th- what did you feel that was about? I definitely feel. I, I definitely agree to some extent. I think it's. It's tough because, like, I know that she experiences, like, these heightened emotional intensities and responses to things, but does it equate to, like, a mental disorder, a mental breakdown of some I would, kind? I mean, I would say that she, like, she is, she's incapable of, uh, you know, she's incapable of, uh, of Functioning. controlling those highs and lows. Yeah. She's, un- and, you know, like, you look at the way she deals with her children, like, I, I. And back then it's very different how they I, I would tackle dis- that. I would disagree with you that. That she's just eccentric, like that is uh, that is you know the way that she deals with her children, where she acts like she's just another child, like that isn't that is you know that's potentially harmful for the child. Like hmm. that's like I'm not saying I'm again I'm not I'm not I'm not asserting that she didn't need to be committed, but I do think there's more. I think being committed is an extreme. Here. Yeah, I think definitely psychiatric care and you know therapy, like some sort of approach to dealing with her. Uh, highs and lows, definitely. I think shock treatment. I mean, this is a different era yeah, we're talking true. about too, right. where they approach mental illness and uh, you know in a in a but very I, extreme way. And I, I I do think that you know one of the other things that really struck me about John Cassavetes that I never realized before is that he's a feminist filmmaker. Oh, definitely. And the films he makes are very much about uh, are are not only just about women, but they're about the way women are gaslighted by men. Yeah. They're about the they're about, they're about the way that women are manipulated by men, about yes. the way that women are meant to feel inferior and small mm-hmm. to men. And in that way, like, he's honestly one of the most important feminist filmmakers ever. And the way that... He has a real sensitivity to that yeah, issue. Um, I mean, you know, and he does these in ways that aren't just um, sort of... Uh, um, he's not just uh, evangelizing. They're not just... They're not just um, uh, he, he is. He's not just. It's not like just an issue movie where right. this is about blank and right. Well, it's all character of, driven. The moral of the story situational is, driven. Yeah, like he really creates deep characters. Um, and to me, one of the most interesting things about that movie, about this movie, is that Peter Falk is extremely dysfunctional. Yeah, parent. Oh, as for well. sure. Um, you see it. Well, I think his problem is at least the way I think he's a character who lives in denial. Mm-hmm. I, I think, think he's yeah. sort of stuck Which can be living. Harmful his his life in the past he's he seems to want his relationship with Mabel to be the way that it was before they had children I think this is a and, movie oh, yeah. about denial I think this is a movie where mm-hmm. in the first half of the film she denies she's in denial about her own condition she is not self-aware of hmm. why she's off-putting to people and in the second half of the film she she's no longer in denial she now I mean something traumatic like being committed for six months and during shock treatment you can't be in denial anymore but the problem is that she comes home to people who are still in denial and still want things to be the way it was and yeah I this is a film about him being in denial and him like no everything's fine Uh, you didn't do anything wrong you didn't do anything wrong and it's because he wants everything to be perfect he wants Mm. he wants the kids to enjoy the beach even though there's no way they can enjoy the beach when he's (laughs) Like fucking yelling at them, yeah, to no kidding. Enjoy the beach, and like that happens a lot in the movie where Peter Falk is just yelling at people to have a good time, and it's right, and it's always just so tragic and so sad. And that's the other thing that I think really interesting about this movie is this movie could have easily been um, a worthwhile and an interesting and 
movie about a man who drives his wife crazy because he's too abusive and too angry. But there is so much empathy towards Peter Falk's character. Oh, for character. sure. Peter Falk's character. Because you see what he has to go his, through. He's just as three dimensional. And mm-hmm. he's. And you can tell that he loves, uh, you know, Mabel. You, you can tell that he loves Mabel, and you can tell that he wants, but he just doesn't know how to express it. And yeah, it's, Th- that's kind of what's beautiful about the movie to me is that you can't, you can't choose, I guess, a clear side in the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Is that you can see things from both perspectives, and um, that's why I love the way the movie resolves at the end. I think it's kind of beautiful, and it's really like, how do you mean? I mean the way things, um. <laughs> Become, I mean, because like I, I, the because of how dramatic and intense the 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 movie kind of becomes, especially when you involve the children and you just want them to not witness what's being taken place, and you know, having gone through some extremes myself, it's really hard to watch children being placed in that environment. Um, and then, but he he kind of though like. Are you talking about the final scene? Yeah, the the final scenes and like you know suddenly you know she gets struck, right? And but I think he even at moments he finds humor in that stuff, right? Like the the idea that he drags the kids up to the room <laughs> and then they all turn around and run right back yeah. downstairs. I know, you know the, like that. Those are the kind of moments where it's like you know you're sobbing in sort of the sadness of everything, but then there's this kernel of sort of humor that works its way. That's a very real sort of thing. You oh, know? for sure. No, that's uh, what I mean. It's like he knows how to find that sort of uh, levity in the moment, despite it being really tragic. And right. then her sort of waking up and realizing, like, I don't know if it's necessarily like suddenly she's become aware of what she's been put through or the fact that she just has to wake up and, you know, fix things and sort of fix up the house or whatever, or they just have to resolve themselves just for the night and then deal with whatever they need to deal with the next day. And it becomes kind of, I don't know, this really beautiful note to end on with the two of them just, I mean, it's, I guess it's kind of up to interpretation how it ends. I interpret it as like unbearably sad, unbearably sad that it was just, that really? that's, that that's well, I don't know if I did. I, th- I <sighs> see. I I feel it ends sort of on like a comfortable silence. Yeah, and but it's to me there's a sense of of hope. To me, there's you a know? sense that this will keep going on. It's possible is, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And that what they've like, yeah, that this this won't end. That the cycle will continue. What what they have accepted is that Mabel will never be what she was, and that. Uh, and, They'll keep, yeah. but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're that. I mean, I don't. I still don't feel that Nick is the kind of character who can then accept in it. And I and watching this movie, I was you know you know I, I don't want to you know talk too much about personal things, but this, these movies are so intense and so personal. That it's like you know I'm, I'm reminded of people in my life, not my own, not my own parents, but other people you know I know whose parents and sort of the dynamic they have and yeah and. Uh, and it's just I feel that it's it is not saying something good. I think I think it, or good good is a you know dumb dumb word to use. It's not saying something that that it's not a positive note. Nothing is fixed by the end mm-hmm. of the film. Well, um, it's, that's that's the thing. It's like my I try to be optimistic and thinking. Well, I hope people can change, but in reality, I don't know if that's always true. It just depends on the person. I think I think the thesis of this film is definitely that. That certain kinds of people cannot change. Right, I can buy that, and I can and definitely two of buy them that. Happen to get married <laughs> together, yeah. 
But it seems like there's an acceptance of the dysfunction that they're going to share together. I mean, maybe that's kind of me, you know, putting my own stamp on a personal I, level. I know. I, I agree. I know. I, I, I see what you're saying. Um, and I agree to a point, but I do think that that acceptance is temporary and that tomorrow Peter Falk is still going to be a, ra- yeah. is still going to be a rageaholic who can't deal with his own emotions and can't deal with things not working out the way he planned. Hmm. And he's still going to be someone uh, who is going to freak out and say the worst possible things in front of the people he loves, including, I'm going to kill all these kids. Like, well, we'll find out in A Woman Under the Influence too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Electric Boogaloo. Soon. I mean, See, I, I don't know. I, I kind of... I understand where you're coming from, but I don't know. Like towards the end of that scene, the phone starts ringing, and yeah. I think part of the movie, a lot of it, is sort of this guy st- stuck, you know, with his wife, but also having this abrasive mother on the other mm. side. And to me, I've always kind of interpreted that the mother's calling on the phone, and he's just—he's not—he's ignoring it. You know, he's that, going to—he's going to support and fight for his wife. And to you, that is a—that is sort of a change in his. Because before, when she was sort of, sort of freaking out, and he got a call from his mother who was sick or fall down or whatever it was. Yeah. That was sort of the end of it. Mm. Um, I, that makes sense. It's a lot of gray areas with his character. I really—I well, mean, his movies are completely ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. and that's and, kind of and, the beauty of but it. But again, they're not shapeless. They're not formless. No, no, right. They're very pointed, and every. Direct. I mean, I, I, very would, direct. I would say this film is probably longer than it has to be. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say that, like, I mean, that was kind of one of my fears going in because realizing, like, a lot of his films run a little bit longer. Um, some felt, you know, like, yeah, you could probably trim 15 minutes out of here or there. I mean, certainly not about the next film at all. But um, this film, I felt maybe that's just the one thing I could say yeah, yeah. is just maybe cut I, up a little bit really, but that's it I really love again uh, Cassavetes he's playing this game where she doesn't have bipolar disorder she doesn't have borderline personality no disorder. he doesn't have to explicitly she have tell you any disorder and in that he reaches sort of a deeper truth and I think it's actually you know what is what is the influence what is the titular influence what is is it the fact that she's could be denial is it is it denial is it the fact that she's a woman and that and that society has placed expectations on her Mm -hmm. as far as being a mother as far as there's actually a uh one of my favorite podcasting uh channel or whatever is maximum fun and they just had released a new podcast about um motherhood um, which i which i actually quite like called one bad mother and when i was (laughs) when i was listening to it like i could not believe like they were just like oh it's a like it's just a nightmare and you just cry all the time and like there's a, like it's what i hear there's a lot of pressure on being a mother and there's a lot of you just give up your sense of self in being a mother and to the point where when he has be yourself she doesn't know what she's doing like to me this is a very feminist movie in, yeah. in terms of that but it's also not just about her um it's also about peter falk and it's also about and i i mean i i've said in the past i love blue collar characters I love when they're treated with, with you know, real respect. Yeah, and they're not. Well, it comes from that world, I'm sure. John Cassavetes. Yeah, I would think, but I don't know, I don't know for sure. I haven't read like a book about him specifically, or know his background in great detail. Just, just the but just the feel I get from his movies, at least he has empathy. What's for that, that, Zach? His parents are Greek immigrants. Oh, he grew up in uh, New York City. 
So right. Yeah. So um, and and I love that you know that that dinner scene. All of those characters are so great because they're not. Yeah. Like because there's the two ways you go. You can about, go about the bullshit goodwill hunting way where they're all <laughs> actually geniuses and blah. Right. You know, or you can go about it like a really condescending kind of way, like the blue collar comedy tour or whatever. Where it's where you know their humanity, they're they're defined by their like stupidity. God, Cassavetes is like the king Nick of the great by dinner hat. scenes. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Peter yeah. Funk is defined by his amazing hat. Um, so yeah, like that that dinner scene where God. in the morning they all come over for for dinner and and just the way they all talk is so down to earth. And I think a lot of those people, although a lot of those characters were amateurs, not not professional actors. Um, and I think it's uh, sort of I love that. I love I just love people who are able to actually write blue collar characters because i mean i you know you we both we we both work jobs uh where we just deal with people who work at grocery stores i you know i deliver pizzas i'm an undocumented worker i work with a lot of undocumented workers i also am a maid i clean apartments like i know that kind of life where yeah. and that and that to me is it's often very un, underrepresented um and despite the fact that Kesbedi's also does a lot of films about artists Mm-hmm. Um, I it's I love in this film that he's able to write a blue collar character like Peter Falk, which is not condescending, but also right. doesn't doesn't isn't a fantasy where he's also like he's some brilliant guy, you know? Yeah, not idealized. In that yeah, way. yeah, not weirdly idealized. Not, he's not like a Stephen King character where it's where it's this weird uh, fantasy version where they're super intelligent and they're also down home and folksy and yeah, so. There's a lot about this movie I love. I will say, compared to Safe Faces or Killing of a Chinese Bookie, um, it felt a little less pointed and a little less shaped. Though, again, this is... Could be a representation of the character, and I know that's kind of the one thing that, like, you don't always buy when it comes to analyzing a movie. I don't don't buy that for a second. I think what it is is that this is a dense film yeah. and it's an honest film and it will be and it rewards you with repeat viewings mm-hmm. and because you'll be looking closer oh for once sure once you know what happens you'll be looking closer and I think whereas something like and unless either of you guys have something else you really want to add about when the influence might be uh, Zach do you have anything to add about um, I would just say that um, I was sort of reading an essay earlier today that compared Cassavetes to Carl Dreyer Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah, that, that, okay. that, 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 that yeah. Criterion essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I was reading that as well. And about Vampire and you know the guy who did Vampire and talking about you know there are two filmmakers in the sound era that essentially they choose to tell their narratives in a way where they never break in the rhythm, the pacing is sustained, um, and that body language from actors becomes almost a, the primary way that a director would tell the story. And I think in this movie. Um, one uh, looking at what I'm always completely stunned by is is that level of chemistry shared between Gina Rollins and Peter Falk, um, because it, so much of it is expressed through winks and hand gestures yeah. and twitches and the this weird jibber jabber that they they have. Um, that there are f- very few films where you feel like um, you know these two actors are so you know they've you feel that they are they've been incredibly intimate with one another in the past is some capacity like that and i think that's kind of him working with the same actors that is sort of the 
product that comes out of that is that these people were such close friends and they know each other so well that there's things that translate on screen that just could never happen in other movies because mm. you know two act you know a lot of movies actors are meeting themselves meeting each other for the first time you know right before they're going to shoot a scene um so I think that's just something important. Absolutely, and 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 also in in sim- there are a bunch of essays in that. There's a in the Cassavetes box set that both A Woman mm-hmm. Under the Influence and Killing Vagina's Bookie are in. There's uh, in the book that comes sort of with it. There is a lot of essays, and one of them was also talking about just. There's also uh, there was an interview I read where he was, he was talking about the way he does it is he makes the crew be as you know he makes the crew interfere as little as possible, and that is a really good point. That this story is entirely told in the most minor of gestures and in that way like as as much as it all takes place in one set sort of it all um you know it's it's mostly just like a couple scene like it a lot of his films feel theatrical but in the way that everything is told not through dialogue but through the way dialogue is said and the way people right. are looking at each yeah. other like there are essentially films and i mean obviously Faces probably is the quint- is the quintessential version of Cassavetes, you know, utilizing the close up, you know, hence the title of the film, Faces. Uh, right. <laughs> but this film as well, like all of his films, have a ton of close ups, and they're all about that. And they're and whereas well, his his camera is always really tight, but um, the thing that is amazing to me is that he's able to prevent uh. He's he's able to prevent a sense of claustrophobia from setting in. Like I, I don't ever feel like, it, and in a lot of films, you know, actors are restricted by the camera's frame, and his actors are never restricted by that. You know, the camera adjusts to the way that they move, and that's why you get a lot of that sort of soft focus stuff. And because, but at the same time, he was an incredible cameraman. Just. And again, this goes back to because he worked with the same people over again, and yeah. his ability to sort of instinctively know when somebody was going to do something and he was able to catch it. I mean, those are just, those are again, just things that other filmmakers wouldn't be able to do if they were not so intimate with these people. Um, but I always feel that his camera feels less like a camera and more like just a, an additional character that is like observing these people. But like this person deeply loves the people that it's observing. Specifically, Um, specifically the camera is you, you feel like you are. That's exactly it. You don't feel. Yeah. yeah. Such an intimacy to all of his films. That's that's really beautiful. That's actually a really brilliant, uh, point. And, um, that's the thing about his, his films that, that sort of intimacy that he has clearly with the actors that the crew has that they know what they're doing like that is again like he isn't you know a lot of people when they talk about oh we couldn't make this film in Hollywood they, what they really mean is oh this film is too violent or it's too weird or whatever like what Casavetes means is no this film has to have a small budget this, mm-hmm. this like this this film could not be made with a big crew this film could not be made with a producer looking over anyone's shoulder well, he very much believed money ruined dreams, which <laughs> I guess is a good segue <laughs> into the killing of a Chinese. Oh girl. yeah, that's you a know. great segue. Um, yeah, I mean, that, you win the you win the award, Zach. Officially, I'm handing it over to you for yeah. the segue. Yeah, yes, there you the go. Segue award. The segue award is, by the way, a segue. So you can yeah, right around. It. That's fun. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess we should talk about the uh, killing of a Chinese bookie. Yeah, Patrick was like, this was your first John Cassavetes movie. And you were hyping it up to no end, 
And I was like, "There's, I think Patrick must be drunk, because yeah. uh, there's no way it can be this A-plus masterpiece that he's talking about. Because no one ever seems to talk about it, so how could it be so great? Right. Oh, my God. This movie's so good. Listen to Patrick, everybody. Real, real, real quick, though, I do want to <laughs> say, I I watch, because on, uh, on the Criterion box set, there is a, um, there's the director's cut, and then there's the theatrical cut that they released uh, in 1978, two years mm-hmm, later, that mm-hmm. cut out a lot of stuff and sort of shortened the running time and made it a little more accessible. Yeah. I watched the director's cut. I don't think anything could have been removed personally. That's how I feel. Yeah, I agree. I haven't, I haven't watched the 70, 78 cut. It's possible that that's also a very good film. Is that what got released on Criterion or Criterion? They both both. are available. I would say with the 78 cut, what is mostly removed is all of the stage performance. Um, That stuff is so important to me. Oh God. Yeah. So my favorite stuff in the movie. Real quick. Killing the Chinese bookie is about a, uh, is about the owner of a strip club who is sort of a gambling addict. And, um, like a lot of, you know, sort of organized crime, he just sort of like, uh, on honestly, in a lot of ways, this isn't that different than a lot of mob movies that came no. out in the 70s. In terms of plot, yeah. Um, you know, this where it's a, it's just about some guy who accidentally gets in over his head. and Owes a debt. Of, yeah, he owes a debt, and it's about him trying to get out of that. And mm-hmm. um, and in that way, you know, it's it's similar to something like Fingers. It's similar to something like Mean Streets, you know, where it's a very it's, – it's a low-level guy who is con- who's loosely connected to crime. Um, but it's more of a it's character driven and it's a character study as opposed to uh, a mob movie like Goodfellas or Good Godfather. Another movie where a man loves his job too. Yeah, loves his work. The portrayal of gangsters though is completely different. Oh, to me, yeah, that, yeah, I, mean, I would that, say that the the because because this film is crazy. It gets despite the fact that is the filmmaking style I would say is a little more um, like there's a little more. Uh, it's not shot quite as documentary style. There's a little more mm-hmm. attention paid to sort of the framing of everything yeah, a, and these on scent and stuff. Um, it's still very same sort of naturalistic acting where scenes sort of have an odd shape that you don't exactly know where everything's going until you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie, as opposed to A Woman on the Influence or Faces, is very surreal. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what kind of blew my mind about it is that the uh, – the the uh, the mob acts like this weird Greek chorus where they're all finishing each other's sentences and they're this sort of mass of of the most unique faces you've ever seen. I, I, good I re- old Seymour Cassell. I recently I recently watched good old Timothy Carey. Yeah, yeah, that guy too. Yeah, I, rec- I want to make a podcast called Timothy Carey's Face. Yeah, <laughs> talk about all the different facial expressions he makes yeah. in this movie. Yeah, you could you could dedicate a podcast to Timothy Carey. His face is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And I actually I recently watched uh, Woody Allen's uh, Stardust Memories, and one of the interesting things about that movie is there are a ton of crowd scenes, and every and he just and uh, he populated that film with just the weirdest faces he could find. I feel this is sort of a similar thing. So yeah, I could see that. But this guy getting in over his hmm. head, but um, it's much more clearly and almost to the point where it's I I suspect that the reason I'm so I was so immediately hot to this film, whereas. I, it took me a while. It's been taking me a while, sort of, to chew over something like a woman under the influence or faces, is because it's very clearly about John Cassavetes. It's very clearly about a man. He owns a strip club and he puts on these sh- technically shoddy shows um, that are very weird. And so you think it's another commentary on 
filmmaking in a way? Oh, yeah. Okay. 100%. It's that. It's about a man who wants to achieve. His primary joy in life is to entertain others. Everyone he meets, he wants them to like him. He wants, you know, I mean, all of Cassavetes' films to an extent are about people who want to be loved. Right. And are struggling to be loved in some way. But the way that, uh, you know, Ben Gazzara in this film, uh, as Cosmo in this film, wants to be loved is he wants people to love his sh- he wants people to love his stage show he wants people to love his jokes he wants to be the most charming man out in the street mm-hmm. as people's cars are getting parked he wants to he wants to uh, tell funny anecdotes about weird newspaper stories he read in the newspaper to his dancers um, he's very like it's very much a family right and it's and everyone who acts and it's very weird and in, in that way it's very very clearly about John Cassavetes and you, you know, the gangsters. You could look at they're just a metaphor for, you know, the system yeah. interfering <laughs> with his work, like it, it, you know, it would, and how essentially, you know, the movie is how money ruins dreams. Yeah, and you know, it's because so funny, Cosmo I... has this dream, but Cosmo, yeah. all he wants is to that strip club. He doesn't need anything more than that. And once that starts to kind of slip away, you know, he starts to. Yeah, you do down, get the idea know. that that his gambling is in part an addiction, but also and and compulsive behavior, but also in part like like that that club. You never see that club really doing too great, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, well, that's it's funny when you bring that up. That connection to like this being an intensely personal film for him, and I love that. It, but when I'm watching it, I'm I'm so immersed into this world and this character and i'm viewing it primarily as just this incredible character study with this uh, this inc- this wholly original guy that i mean maybe yeah if you were to describe his character and his plight you've seen it in a hundred different movies but ben gazzara good god what an actor so good so amazing and you know, he has his moments. Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, of course. Um, and very wonderfully understated in something like Happiness, too. He's really good in that. Um, smaller role, obviously, but still. He's he's shown up like in smaller parts uh, in a lot of movies that I've seen. But uh, like seeing something like this makes me want to s- go back and watch. I mean, obviously, I'm going to talk about Husbands, too. But there's just so many incredible performances by him that I probably have not even um, touched upon the surface of what he's achieved as an actor. But seeing this was just like a revelation, too, for me. Watch a St. Jack. St. Jack? Bogdanovich movie. Oh, okay. Sort of like, um, in a strange way, it is sort of like a sequel to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not playing the same character, but he plays like a it's a it's a pimp. So oh great, you know, he's he's not far. Cosmo Vitelli's not far from. Mm-hmm. He's you know the next ring up from being a pimp basically. But like I feel like it's a really great um, director actor relationship going on here because they they seem to understand like the idea of bringing a warmth and delicacy to this sort of uh, kind of relationship within the movie and. There's a great attention to detail that Cassavetes brings. I mean, he lets sit- scenes his, linger on. All of his movies are so dense with detail. Yeah. Another reason I want to go back and watch all of his films again is the audition scene for this movie is beautiful. Like him just deciding to run into a phone booth and make that call 
Um, that call, yeah, that call is amazing, hilarious, yeah, and sad, and, yeah, and yeah. and every single uh, and I mentioned this a lot. That was like uh, like like Zach said this a lot. That was cut out from the seventy eight mm-hmm. version, but all of those on stage performances, <laughs> we were watching those. And it's kind of gross, and <laughs> and everyone seems kind of sweaty, and it's kind of surreal because the lighting is a little off, and these the cameras just doing these long takes. Those are all so heartbreaking and so inspiring and mm-hmm. so funny. Like you really want to root for these characters. It's not mocking them in right. any way, but it is well, pointing. It, what do you mean? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that I think, like I was talking about conformist society and a woman under to me like this movie is still very much about a conformist society and it's even how within the strip club there's a conformist society where you have like these people who don't really know what they're working for but they know they want to do a good job and it's like yeah these people's entire lives revolve around pleasing other people not pleasing themselves and that's kind of exactly what cosmo is to me is that um he's he is a conf- he want he like even there's the moment when he has to sign for the gamb- gambling debt like there are so many different ways that they could choose to play that and yet he chooses to be very subtle very polite because to me that's what i think he thinks you know he's how he's supposed to behave but i don't know that that's instinctively how he would behave I think but it- he's trying to be someone that's a part of a higher society than he actually is. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing is he's in, you know, like uh, like Peter Falcon, woman of influence. Like, there's a certain level of denial that's going on, right? Where, like, he is way in over his head. The amount of money he loses is ridiculous, but he's still acting like, like, oh yes, this is part of part of it. I understand. Yes, yeah. and and people are like, how you and and the mob's not having it. Like, how are you going to pay? How are you going to pay? Look, I always pay my debts. That's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, he's really trying to. Sort of he's sell it. Blase as, about a lot yeah, of things. Trying, well, it's not even being. I think he's trying to convince himself as much yeah, as anyone else. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Sure. Um, uh, that everything is fine, and he seems to be really adaptable. I mean, just all of a sudden, like you know, oh, I'll do what I need to do, you know, step by step, and like the the, the really incredibly well done because you don't see this in most Cassavetes films. Really taught, suspenseful weirdly constructed uh stalking sequences involving assassination or you know like just like yeah, him the, the titular killing of a Chinese yeah, bookie yeah, is the that. job that he is assigned in mm-hmm. order to pay off his debt what i love about that is it starts off as a debt and then it, it gets out of hand so quickly oh god like, yeah he gets, it escalates it like escalates a, so quickly and but so assuredly and not right. and it does not seem contrived at all no. despite the fact that the mobs hardly even seems like real people. Like they're, they feel like a Greek chorus. Yeah. But just somehow, like in the back of a car, here's your gun. Go do this, and that's that <laughs> scene where they're describing what he has to do yeah. is one of my favorite all-time scenes of anything. Where they're all like finishing each other's sentences. Yep. And he's supposed <laughs> to just hold on to all of this in his head. I like, know. This like this isn't fucking Grand Theft Auto. He doesn't have a little radar in the corner of the screen that he right. just follows to the red triangle. Like, this, he has to like. People are, yeah. all right, and then it says, and make sure to get these hamburgers, man, no pickles. No, <laughs> yeah, no one, like, it is insane and incredible. And Yeah, and it's like, how many movies would you, like, gangster movies do you see where it's like, you know, the car breaks down, <laughs> so then he runs, and then, he, you know, yeah. actually would show the hamburger scene for as extent, as long yeah, as the hamburger scene is, you know, like, there, like, there is a mundane quality to it that I really love that, you know. 
and scene by scene, it has a purpose. It's not like yeah, strenuous. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. That's the other. That's the other thing about this. Well, some people criticize that it is extraneous. I didn't. I feel that I so feel much that of it is. I feel it's so essential. Yeah, that's what I was character. thinking throughout. I feel like it's so essential to setting up the tone of the film, the hopelessness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also just. It's and the more you set up what he's actually working for, which is the strip. He isn't a great, well-respected artist. This is a strip club where you hear the crowd just yelling, "Just take it off!" Like yeah. no one respects them. Um, and but this is what he lives for, and the way that, like, he shows so much courage in the face of it. Like he, you know, he 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 will do what he needs to do, and um, and. And, and he doesn't – and to the point where even after he kills the Chinese bogey, like he, he doesn't know how he's even processing it. Like there's a scene where he just throws up in the street and he – Right. Like it takes him a while to, for the emotions of what he did to even catch up to him. And um, I, I, I just really love – you just really love him and you really root for him and you really like just respect that he is an artist and whether or not he's a great artist, he is an artist who will fight to do what he needs to do. To make get his art made and, um, oh god! And then then the final sort of ending, which again is super tense and scary and and, and dramatic and well edited. The sort of almost not quite shootout right that goes on <laughs> that is really really scary um, and 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 tense like. Yeah, and then how that just spells his doom, and and the, and ambiguous too. But I mean, I think like I don't know. There's something about kind of like his last. I don't. I didn't find much ambiguous about this. Well, I think film. the the very ending. You mean in terms of whether? I mean, that's it's pretty much his end. I, a, I'm yeah. I'm pretty sure it's implied that he he's dies. Yeah. That okay. He, he went mm-hmm. on stage. He gave his curtain call. Yeah. He said everything needed to be said, and then he he goes out and. But even his curtain call is tragic because right. he so desperate. Like that's the moment where he de- so desperately wants to just be himself. Like he wants to express who he truly is. He does. He's he's going up there because it seems like you know he's finally gonna. He's not doing things for others, and yet he can't. He can't even bring himself to do that. In the end, he so- sort of folds, and that's what's really sad. Like you, something I I think is sort of like they people don't talk about enough with him is the sort of incredible editor that Cassavetes is yeah. like he mm. he understands the power of like a an individual cut more almost than any other filmmaker i've seen because um because his characters are so vivid and he creates such dramatic height in his movies when he makes when when he makes a cut i would say that usually a cut in sort of some sort of big gr- dramatic tension moment sort of alleviates some tension instead his cuts only intensify tension like (laughs) it's almost to the point where you're you're completely thrown off and to me it's it's interesting he does it a lot in scenes where there's a group of people sitting at a table where you'll see somebody say something and it'll do this hard cut to somebody else where it's a reaction but you're not even sure that what their their reaction or what they're saying in response is to even what that person was saying like the timeline kind of gets thrown off and yet mm -hmm. it's still remains incredibly organic like it it, it's a very sort of disorienting because he's completely non-linear linear in that sense um like to me that's sort of why when i look at his movies i'm so 
I marvel at the fact that the way that he cuts his films. Yeah, this, this yeah, I, I mean, this film, that. he and a lot of his films, they employ a lot of elliptical editing to the yeah. point where you just sort of have to trust that that you will understand where everything is going, even if. Uh, well, that's that. The best example in this movie is actually during that car garage shootout, where the so second guy, you know, it's you don't see Cosmo shoot him, but it is implied that he does kill yeah. that second guy. You right. Know, but you never see it, and it's so kind of ambiguous. It's not something that at least I picked up on the first two or three times that I saw the movie until I watched it, you know, fourth or fifth time. So I mean, those subtleties, like because I. I I wouldn't say a lesser filmmaker, but a different filmmaker would have to show him shoot that guy for the audience. You know that, but it, that's not what's important in that moment so much. And yet, as like much as we've uh, you know um, gone on about how incredible he is in general with the the visual components of his storytelling process and how he's able to cut so well and work with actors and really get to the emotional core of, of his filmmaking process. There is certainly um, one of the best moments in all of the films I've watched of his involving him actually talking to everybody he works with backstage about how he feels about himself that practically brought tears to my eyes. Like him talking, like him sort of like bearing his soul to everybody backstage for a moment, like being completely honest and talking about, I'm only happy when I'm angry and when I'm sad I can play the fool and when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself and you know what's your truth is my falsehood and what's my falsehood is your truth and vice versa like he kind of rambles but it's sort of profound and really interesting like revealing of uh, of a person who's really fractured but also very self-assured at the same time and like sometimes I don't always like it when a character spells out his personality in that direct way, but in that moment, it felt so pure. Well, I think that moment works because it's a moment of clarity. Yeah. I mean, he's dying at that point. Exactly, and he's realizing, I need to just come to terms with things. and Everything is put into focus. Um, and what better place to do it in his you know, in the place that he loves and where he sort of defines his character. The other thing that's amazing, amazing about John Cassavetes is every single character gets the same amount of respect and same amount of humanity. I mean, the Chinese, the titular Chinese bookie. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. I've been bad. I've I know. Been bad. Like that is heartbreaking. I know. I could, so much and we don't know so anything much. about him or like, we don't have a backstory. We don't, we don't no, even know. I know. know exactly. Like we know he's not a bookie. We know right. he's some kind of drug kingpin, mm-hmm. but we don't know exactly like who he is or what he's done but it's just like just so much history he's given and so little and and the waitress he picks up from across the street the way that that audition scene is shot just from the waist down and yeah and, oh. and you see her not dancing sexy but dancing like a little girl yeah i know and just sort of skipping shot, around she shot from the waist down dancing like a little girl like that's, yeah it it not only says so much about her and her naivete and yeah. and how tragic her, the place she is it says something about how tragic, you know, Ben Gazzara, he's sort of acting impulsively. You, mm-hmm. you can, maybe he may, he may or may not be, you know, just getting off on auditioning a random person. Um, he may, and just that subverts it so much. He seems desperate to connect in a way. And that's like something I I know is kind of like a character trademark in a lot of movies where people 
who are you know damaged psychologically in some way. You kind of come to expect that, especially in a Cassavetti's world, but he manages to make it seem fresh in almost all of his movies, which is kind of an amazing marvel. <laughs> like, in, we're going to talk about other movies pretty soon here, and we should. But um, I mean, and his, his girlfriend's mother, that yeah. scene between them where... Um, oh yeah! Oh. Is, you know she could have easily oh. been played as the when he like explodes at she's her. A, she's a non-actor too. Oh. And the, just the you can you can kind of tell the way sort of the low key way that she she lives yeah. her lines up, but like yeah. it's like you know she could have easily been just a simple stand-in you know boilerplate character of the understanding black woman, the mother or whatever. And she's no, I can't deal with this. You you've pushed this too far, mm-hmm. and I don't know what's going on. And honestly, I it doesn't matter what's going on. I can't deal with this anymore. So you have yeah. to go. Like that's heartbreaking because you can see her pain in saying something like that. Like these minor characters who shouldn't, you know, who in any other film would not be getting these big moments. In a Cassavetes film, he right. finds a way to play. You know, just like Women Under the Influence, you can look at, at it from. You can see things from Peter Falk's point of view you can see things from gina Rowland's point of view in any given scene you can see things from every single person's point of view right i think you know i've gone on record many times as being kind of the a big softy in general but this was a movie that when it was over made me want to cry because of how graceful it seemed like watching this movie like not just because of the story or the film it's like i'm just thinking i want more movies like to be like this in a way because of how it it just it, it feels like so perfect in it, in its execution and character development and everything about it is like exactly what i want from movies in every way and i don't get that very often and sometimes i get a little jaded and cynical in terms of like well got to watch this movie again okay but this is like one of the most original and incredible filmmaking experiences i've had in a long time and I'm I'm going to probably eventually watch everything John Cassavetes has done Absolutely. based on this movie alone. So, Killing a Chinese Bookie is possibly in the top 30 of all time for me now. Zach, I would I would skip out on Big Trouble. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, like that was his and, last and film. And possibly too. A Child is Waiting. Oh, yeah, I haven't heard of that one, but mm. Zach, anything else you would like to add about Killing a Chinese Bookie? Um, I would say that rewatching it this time, I kind of found a whole new love for it as well to where I, I do think it kind of is my favorite movie of his and I think what I do love so much about it is it's it's unlike his other films because it entirely exists within a sort of self-contained world yeah. um, and it even kind of has you know a world within that world in the the strip club and I don't know like I, those those performances are just my absolute favorite thing about the movie. Like, uh, it's just the, the strange, surreal quality. It's just like there's no other filmmaker on the planet that would devote so much time to that. That um, I don't know. I find them very beautiful in a very, and I love Mead Brown, the guy who plays Mister Sophistication. Oh, yeah. He's, oh, yeah. he's fantastic. Yeah. He's, just like a, he's a screenwriter that John Cassavetes likes, so he's like, I'm going to put him in my movie. And, you know, this sort of... God, when people start applauding for him, I'm just like... Another, like, oh, man, this movie. I'm just so in love. I love when Mr. Sophistication shows a little yeah. bit of sort of self-awareness, where he's like, I'm yeah. not a freak, but I'm, I attract the freaks. And yeah. like, like, he sort of understands where his place is. And mm-hmm. that's, that's just a brilliant moment. Yeah. I mean, John Ca- the thing about John Cassavetti's films that 
you know, they're not necessarily the most showy, formalistic films. They're not necessarily right. the ones with the most dazzling shots or the best special effects or the Doesn't witty, call attention or the, to him. or the wittiest dialogue. But like everything that isn't hyped about the job of being a director, as far as casting, as far as working with actors, as far as just choosing how to how to run a set, as like all of those things that you know don't really get talked about as much. Um, he is the master of, and that's how you can have a film with performances like this or like faces or like woman of the influence. And because he created a war, he created an environment in which those kinds of things can happen. He created a, a very comfortable environment for actors. I, I can sense that immediately. Um, and very characteristic. And one of the more standout films that I got to watch was husbands. And again, it was very long and I was a little intimidated at first. And, Obviously, when you got like you know uh, Peter Falk and Ben Gazzara, you're like excited knowing that they're in the film, and you got Cassavetes himself, which you know I I don't I mean I know he he was like in Rosemary's Baby, and I've seen him in other films as an actor before, so I was really excited to see you know a, a John Cassavetes movie where he was acting in it too, um, and for this one um, again a pretty devastating film and it's one of the best portrayals of a midlife crisis as well as like confronting the uh, emptiness that you feel following like a sudden loss that they, they uh, experience after losing a close friend. And, you know, they, they, they basically have, it starts off with like a series of photographs that you automatically just know that this friend and, you know, this group, these other three guys were really close and had a rich history together. And then, you know, you immediately cut to a funeral where you'd see that the, the, the ties between them have been severed. And then the rest of the film is very much this, this sort of out and out, like, um, breakdown of each character and, you know, it's I, some people kind of described it as this like uneven and tedious experience of watching guys fall apart, but it's kind of justified in a way because of how compelling it is and how sad and these characters have intense revelations throughout. Um, I mean, I, you, I could, you couldn't really define any of John Cassavetes' films as being even. No, and definitely not. And para, and uh, and and uh, symmetrical. But and- it's it really he explores the conflict between personal like selfishness and yet again the desire to connect and you know experiencing loss. You really feel this disconnection and you don't know how to process it. And I think he really does a great job with this movie with like three guys, uh, you know, bonding and yet falling apart at the same time throughout. And it's, I wouldn't say it's episodic, but they go through, you know, binge drinking and they certainly like have really strange experiences. It's, it's like Cassavetti's version of The Hangover. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I like it clean. I like it sloppy. Yeah. I like it clean and sloppy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, like, it has its moments where, you know, a character will just say, emotionally, I'm in deep trouble. And it's pretty much <laughs> sums it all up. Um, but there's really funny moments. There's really poignant moments. And throughout the entire film, because you have these charismatic uh, actors working off of one another, um, and I assume some somewhat improvisational they're really really incredible to watch 
And it's, again, one of the very best portrayals of a midlife crisis that I've seen in, like, again, dealing with the loss of somebody close and not knowing exactly how to feel about it and kind of dealing with it in a very unhealthy way. But at the same time, they're also strengthening their friendship throughout. Um, But it's, it's one of those really raw organic films that you come to expect from Cassavetes. And uh, I I found it really moving as it went along. So, Uh, Zach, what's another uh, Cassavetes film you'd like to sort of discuss? Well, I'm a big fan of Opening Night. Um, I I think it's a little bit more formal than his other works, and it's a bit more structured. Um, But I think straightforward. What do you? What's that? I I I also found it a little more straightforward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I agree with that. I I but I do kind of think. um, I love Gina Rollins in the movie as Myrtle Gordon, and um, there's. It's more of a movie that where I always look at Cassavetes as he's a very specific filmmaker in the sense that I don't always necessarily love every scene in his movies. Um, You don't always necessarily find every scene super interesting, but there are like a dozen of those scenes in some of his movies that you absolutely love and they kind of make up for sometimes what things I guess some people would describe as a little more tedious and that's sort of how I feel about opening night, but I really love the way that he uses the the stay the play within the film framework because he uses it um in the best way that I've ever seen anybody else use it and I think <laughs> what I kind of love about it in another way is that you kind of get to see Rollins and Cassavetes together on screen and um oh wow it's there's a, an incredible moment at the end that um, they talk about in A Constant Forge, which is the documentary in the box. It's like five hours long. It's incredible. But um, about how, you know, and Patrick, you saw this, so you know the whole athlete's trick thing yeah. at the end of the movie. Like, I find that incredible, but that's only, again, if possible, if, like, in order to pull that off, because it was completely improvised, Rollins had no idea what he was doing. Um, that was not scripted, and they kind of did that in one take or whatever, and they, they just pulled it off. Like, um, you know, <laughs> he could only do that if that was his wife. And I, I find that there's like so many moments like that in his movies where it's like, you know, you can only do this if you know this some person so well that just make his movies so unique, unlike anybody else. And I mean, I, I also just think the movie's kind of an interesting look at identity and the duality and the whole thing with the the young girl that's killed um it's it's very unusual territory for him i feel um but i again i think it's sort of ambiguous and i i just i it's incredible i feel like i'm a broken record because i keep going hey it's incredible but yeah, yeah really oh, everything true. is think about it, i mean yeah. there's i what i love about the the stage stuff on opening night is you know, you know, Cassavetes films are often sort of defined by their elliptical editing, and yeah. mm-hmm. one of the most interesting sort of subversions of that is the way whenever you, whenever any kind of movie takes place in a theater and you see people rehearsing a play, you don't know at what part of the play the scene is. Like you see them rehearsing different scenes at different times, and you don't exactly know how the play even all comes together. And so that, to me, that's a Cassavetes film in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Which is another sort of meta layer, in addition to the fact that this is a film about a woman who feels trapped by the script and wants to break through uh, yeah. and find some deeper truth. That's true. And like, there's that sort of meta layer, and um, 
I love. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked about my love of the the Gold Diggers uh, musical series um, by Busby Berkeley, and I love uh, Joan Blondell in this. I love that you know Joan Blondell is in her sixties in this, so she's you know she's clearly you know an older woman, but because she's Joan Blondell, she has the most amazing eyes, and thus just looking at her once you go, you understand exactly like oh this is an older woman who used to be beautiful, and this is her struggling with the fact that. She's no longer a young, beautiful woman. Well, it's uh, even incredible too. I mean, this is something really small, but it's like whenever she's in the at the theater, she's always wearing that hat. Yeah. And then there's the one moment where she goes to the apartment and you know, the hat's off, and it's to me, hmm. it's like a huge revelation because she kind of looks like a turkey in the theater, and then <laughs> you know she takes the hat off, and it's like, oh wow, you know, like well, yeah. <laughs> Her head isn't well, actually a, like a bowling ball. That's like, sort of the like – I mean it's – opening night, I, I would say, suffers – it's very, very direct to the point where there are characters sort of saying what it's about. Just sort of yeah. speaking the lines of, oh, she – you're afraid of aging? You don't know what's going – like like just everything the movie is about is spoken by characters. Um, but I do like that – like uh, A Woman Under the Influence hmm. – this is a woman who everyone is trying to help her and no one can help her. No one is capable mm-hmm. and she is – and that's and that's the tragedy. It isn't that – you know, there's a lot of easy shorthand that a lot of films take where she – you know, it's sad because the entire world is against her and she's the only one. This is a woman who just can't – she can't be helped um, and she wants to be helped but she just can't. She's in – and again, another – you know, she's in denial. She's oh, in denial no. about her situation, how she's dealing with seeing, uh, you know, a fan killed, and she's in denial uh, about what that means for the rest of the play. And you know, okay, I'll have to check this one out. I mean, a good selling point, at least for me, is like you know, you mentioned a character having beautiful eyes, likes to wear hats, and looks like a turkey. Yeah. So <laughs> I am going to have to check this one out. Apparently, you should just check out all the, the musicals that Joan Blondell is in. In that case. Does she always wear hats and look uh, like yeah, a turkey? Yeah, they all took place during the Depression. She was always wearing hats. Oh, cool. I don't know if she always looked like a turkey, <laughs> but she always had beautiful eyes. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, I, it's not a fate. I would say Opening Night is of the films that I didn't finish Shadows because was, it was too late. And uh, I was having – I was really – I was halfway through it and I had no idea where it was going. I was really struggling with the structure of Shadows. So I didn't actually end up finishing that one. Um, but It's tough. So of the films – Really? You think it's tough to finish? Or well, I mean, in, in terms of, uh, I think you have to be in the right frame of mind for that because it it's very, to me, it had a French new way of feel to it. Um, and coming off of, you know, seeing something like Killing of a Chinese Bookie and the other Cassavetes films, uh, it, it's, it took me aback um, because, you know, from what I, in terms of expectations, Cassavetes, this seemed like more of uh, you know a debut, a raw feel to it that I was like, um, I have to readjust myself a little bit more with this particular film. I didn't, I wasn't turned off by it. I actually did get through it and I liked it mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, you know, and it, obviously it tackles the issue of uh, you know racism at a very heated time in, in history. And does but it- I don't, I don't think that. See, to me. A lot of people turn shadows into like an issues film. It doesn't and I really. I don't think it's that at all. Like I don't think the racism element is like it's something become... that was purposely super intended as much as I think some people think it well, is. Well, the characters honest, deal honestly, with it. Though. To me, honestly, I think that's its strength. Is yeah. that it doesn't turn it into an issue. It deals with 
you know, it has black characters, and the black characters are there's conflict, just, and they're not they're not like noble suffering right. black characters the way that a lot of issues kind of films would right. depict. To them. me, it's just it treats them like real people. Oh sure, sure, real people like with that, real problems. I mean, you know? I didn't, like, yeah, I didn't finish Shadows, but that scene with uh, that scene where they're all trying to work out how exactly to tell the joke mm-hmm. and what joke and like, oh, I'll tell it really classy, like like that is just you know, it's just about embarrassment and just and just that whole scene is embarrassing. Um, my, I would say my second favorite film, apart from uh, Killing a Chinese Bookie, would, would be Faces, because Faces of Death. Faces to me, I mean, I, I talked about this before about how the John Cassavetes plays a game where just feelings and emotions of a scene mutate, and I mean, some criticize uh-huh. this as it feels like acting exercises where it's like, all right, the scene starts off where everyone's drunk and happy, and then it becomes sad, and then it becomes angry, and then it becomes hurt, and you know. But like to me, he pulls it off so well that it doesn't. It never feels like anything other than honest. And faces, you know, it has that sort of "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf" quality. Oh yeah, everyone's kind of soaked in alcohol, and but the just the rawness of the emotions, and I mean the rawness of the film stock sort of reflects that. Like it's it's very <laughs> relentless in that regard at times. And where the, the performances are incredible, and Gina Rollins, like everyone in it is incredible. And it's again, it's a very feminist film about the way that you know about the way that sort of domineering men you know and the, the way that they hurt women and the way that they you know uh, you know that the way that affects women and the way that you know the expectations placed on women hurts them and like i find that really fascinating about it especially in, from a movie from 19 was it 1969 mm-hmm. or, 19, or 68 68 yeah. like that's it's a very you know forward-thinking film and it's very honest and it's and every scene in it to me is just Amazing, like that opening scene where you don't know how everyone's relating to each other, and then suddenly, just like that, it snaps. As far as well, how much do you charge? And she's like, "Don't ruin it." Like, oh just yeah, heartbreaking yeah. moment that, and it just churns on a dime like that. And, and the suicide scene where you, where suddenly we're no longer, <sighs> we're, our point of our point of reference is no longer the woman. The, our point of reference is the man that she brought home, and how he calls. Nine one one, and he doesn't know the address, and he just hangs up. Like he, like, and just that moment where he realizes he doesn't know the address, and he at that, like that again, snap focus. Mm-hmm. He realizes how in over his head he is, and yeah, to be faced is just endlessly brilliant and captivating, and uh, it's a remarkable piece of work. I think like capturing the d- deterioration of people not knowing how to manage their emotions and. The the really I mean you're uh, what an appropriate title you're face to face with these people throughout again it's another one where the film where the the camera work just makes you feel like you're in the room with these people yeah and, you're, and like you the way I think about this film the way I remember this film is it's like oh remember that night where those two yeah. guys came home yeah I know it's it to me like when you're talking about the camera work it is where early Cassavetti's aesthetic meets future Cassavetti's aesthetic aesthetic though because his previous three films it was all sort of because shadows the camera work isn't as intimate as it as it becomes later whereas the next two movies he did post shadows are very much studio effort movies um where you can see just how uncomfortable he was working in that structure and then faces is sort of the the breakout of that and then he kind of never looked back after that movie yeah, face, yeah, faces to me is just—it's just another like just sort of perfect film that just yeah. Every scene kind of blows my mind, and to the point, and it is, but it is still a film that I want to watch again because I feel like it is saying something larger about mm, the relationship. Yeah, it might be, and I maybe yeah. not 
didn't all put it together because I was just so captivated on a. In, it'd like, be it'd be really hard to like. I can't imagine. I know you said you watched a lot of these in a row, Zach. That like watching something like Faces and Woman Under the Influence back to back would be just like so draining. Yeah, I watched Opening Night and Woman Under the Influence back to back, and oh, it was just yeah, yeah. Like it just puts you in a different mood. You can't. Yeah. It's hard to choke. I'm curious, um, Zach, if you're familiar at all. I mean, we're gonna wrap things up pretty quick, but. Um, are you familiar at all with like his son's films? I mean, like, I rem- I don't have I've a good seen the Notebook. <laughs> well, I've seen that too, and I kind of <laughs> like it. Yeah, I do too. Uh, yeah, um, I I remember seeing She's So Lovely a long time ago, and I don't remember it. And like that was, I guess, I don't know if it was like his debut film and whatnot, but people were like trying so desperately to find nuggets of you know, John Cassavetes in that film because it was about dysfunctional people, disintegrate, disintegrating relationships, alcoholism. And it was way more comedic, at least in my mind. That's how I remember it. Uh, but I, I, you know, Nick Cassavetes obviously went a completely different direction as a filmmaker and became more mainstream, but it's, and obviously you can't really like compare when, you know, uh, uh, the son of a filmmaker goes off in his own direction too, but John Cassavetes never would have guest starred on Entourage. <laughs> <laughs> but Good but uh, she's so lovely. What's interesting about that movie? That was originally going to be something that John Cassavetes. That's right. Direct. And yeah, he died. Yeah, so. that's right. Uh, yeah, I I don't remember it too well to really make like a full blown commentary on it, but um. It's interesting though because like I I was because he, he he continued to work with you know his mom essentially right yeah mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a big fan of his daughter's film uh, Z Channel a magnificent obsession that's one of my favorite his daughter yeah Zon Cassavetes I'm familiar with Zoe Cassavetes who did a really great underseen film called Broken English with Parker Posey I really really love that movie it's one of the best portrayals of like um 30 somethings feeling kind of lost in like the dating world and not being able to find um you know the right one to settle down with and it's mostly because she has an anxiety disorder and i i had not seen like a film that uh genuine to uh someone struggling with it in in that real of a way and it was kind of an organic film that sort of falls apart with the third act because it becomes very conventional. But for like the first hour of that movie, I was like, damn, I I hope this, this woman makes more movies because I really, it really got to me. And again, Jenna Rollins is in it and plays Parker Posey's mom. Uh, But I don't think she ever made anything else other than that film, which is kind of disappointing because I thought it was a really remarkable debut for her. So that's kind of interesting that like uh, the majority of the Cassavetes, um, Offspring went on to become filmmakers in their own right. So I think we're ready to wrap it up here, guys, and give our top three John Cassavetes films. And since I'm, I'm going to make Patrick go first this time. Yeah, no problem. Uh, number one would be Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Number two would be Faces. Number three would be Woman Under the Influence. And for me, number one, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, of course. And number two would be Husbands, and number three would be uh, Woman Under the Influence. Uh, my number one would be The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, number two, A Woman Under the Influence, number three, Faces. Excellent, guys. Well, again, can't thank you enough, Zach, for coming on the show. What a 
great discussion here we had on oh, a oh. remarkable filmmaker. Thank you very much for having me. I, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Hopefully I was a serviceable backup plan. <laughs> you of course, you can find great. Zach Patanti's podcast on uh, is it blogspot. Dot no, WordPress. WordPress. Filmjive.wordpress.com. I'm getting all sorts of things wrong here. Uh, Nick Batante. Uh, no, <laughs> Zach and Zach and Nick have a great have a great show. Uh, Zach so and Mary make a porno. Out. Zach and Mary make a porno. Um, Nick Just and so Nora. the listeners know too, you guys, I will. <laughs> I will be heard on this show, but I will not be heard from on Film Jive for the next like three episodes. Whoa! Oh, really? Yeah. Well, because you got booted. We were, the next review is Stoker, which I thought I would have been able to see by now, but then I checked the release dates like three days ago, and it doesn't come out till like the twenty second over oh. here. So. You, can, you can say it. Nick Wheatley is doing a hostile takeover. I know how this thing I, works. I, I think it is becoming a completely like British-centric cool. cool, show. Man. He's got all these British guests lined up. I don't know hmm. these people. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I know what's happening exactly. They want they want they want to take the revenge for the American Revolution. I know what's happening. All right, Film Jive is the battleground for the new revolution. They're trying to take back. They're trying to. You know what? Yeah, I'm not going to stand for it. I'm I'm going to just start my own show. I'm going to take the Film Jizz title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> film Jizz with me. Yeah. No, Nick Wheatley's great. I was on the yeah. uh, Hobbit episode with him. He's he's a great host. So agreed. So even if even if Nick Patonde is not on the show, still worth still worth checking out. And, uh, same with Zach. Where else can we find your work? I know you're on Twitter uh, though, aren't you? Yeah, but I don't tweet very much. Oh, okay. Usually when I do, it's something completely worthless. But you can find me at Zach Patonte, and then I'm, where else am I? I'm on Letterbox. Oh, cool. Uh, and I guess that's all. I'll, that's all I'll plug. All right, Patrick. What are we going to do next episode? Anything? <laughs> uh, what do you mean? We're going to declare Dennis, right? Oh, literally, we're going to do someone live on the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to do French filmmaker Claire Dennis. She's oh, agreed. it's a. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun, sexy. Maybe time you guys should be direct film jizz. Mm. Yeah. Um, no, uh, Claire Denise is next on the show. Is that her name? Is, how do you say Den- Dennis or Denise? I am. It's French. Oh, okay. I uh, I don't know how to pronounce anything. Claire Denise. Yeah, 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 yeah. It sounds uh, creepy. It's uh, bourgeoisie. Is how it's okay. Um, Probably gonna talk some white material because I know you like that. Yeah, it's a great movie. Probably uh, either Thirty Five Shots of Rum or Beau Travel. Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beau Travel. I don't know. I don't know if we have a guest. As a matter of fact, like French cuisine. Hear, as a matter of fact, if you hear this and you are a fan of uh, Claire Denise uh, and you would like to be on the show, please contact us because uh, it's kind of hard for me. It's been I've been having trouble finding people to be on that episode. So, Aww. But uh, in the meantime, of course, you can read all my writing on MarthaMarcyNashAndYoung.wordpress.com. And I know Patrick's mad at me because I don't write reviews, but you can find me at Letterboxd at Instant Gym as well as Twitter. You should really start writing reviews. I know. I'm so busy. Instant Jim at Twitter as well. I'm at Patrick Capole on Twitter. Um, you can send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And obviously our website is directorsclubpodcast.com. And, uh, you know, keep an eye out. Uh, we have, we just, uh, I, just paid, I just paid Gabe Powers again. Some <gasps> our Gabe Powers articles should be on their way. That's great. Yeah, yeah, he's the best. Um, you know, I'm, again, I'm sort of developing a fan film uh column i'm not mm-hmm. sure how, how when that's going to drop but it might happen so and i've been trying to post more on the uh on the blog so 
Yeah, and stay tuned for my Martin Donovan interview. There you go. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for the Claire Denise episode. Goodbye. Gazara is always ordering oh, double scotches. God. Ben Gazara. Yeah. Good lord. Yeah. It's that one with the insensitive man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that never happens. What are you talking about? That dog is really cute. You should. That should be your official director's club mascot. A, a dog from AC, <laughs> ad. Look at him. He's really happy enough to be dead. All right, you ready, friend? I'm I'm ready to record the podcast. Shut your mouth, girl. Don't you got homework to do? Don't tell me what to do. All right. We got to get in John Cassavetti's mode, so I'm just going to be abusive. Yeah, there you go.